All right, we're back to uh, We Are What We Hated, and I believe this is episode 22. And, of course, always with us is, is Larry, the contractor guy. Uh, and he had made mention yesterday um, in discussing what we're going to do today, uh, and he mentioned William Ramsey, as he has several times, not only to me, but uh, uh, during the, uh, the whole uh, length of the program. And I just got this real brainstorm. It's like, you know, maybe it's time we can get William on. So um, I asked him, and he's here. And, William, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it, especially with the short notice. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. And we're going to talk about some of uh, William's work and if there's anything else new that might be coming down the pike. And uh, you've seen the website there. It's, it's up with uh, the audio. And that's occult911.com. So um, it was Larry's idea. And so, Larry, why don't you frame what we're going to do today, uh, since this is obviously your baby and... Uh, and uh, you wished for William to be here, and he's here. Well, basically, uh, I was wanting William to come on to uh, to discuss Crowley uh, and and his influence on the Nazis and Hitler, and also uh, Crowley's influence on other individuals who were somewhat partially responsible for World Wars One and Two. And of course, uh, we could talk somewhat about uh, Crowley's influence on on the events of. The 21st century and 9/11. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask William about is uh, in his chapter uh, 16 in in Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9/11 and the New World Order, which we'll be talking about today. In chapter 16, it starts off with a picture of Crowley and a in a uh, a quote from him where he said, "Before Hitler was, I am." He he uh, made that statement in Time magazine, December 15, 1947. And I was wanted to ask, uh, what do you think he meant by that? And, and I, I kind of have an idea what he meant, but I'd like to get your take on that, and maybe you can elaborate on it somewhat. Well, I think what he was trying to impart was that he he was taking credit for kind of Hitler's actions, uh, that he he was kind of the ideologue, and, and Hitler was more of the actor of, of really what took place in the middle of the 20th century. So I think for him, uh, you know, he wanted to uh, pervert that biblical quote uh, and, uh, you know, see himself as the kind of arbiter or the creator of that, uh, of the massive destruction or or the influencer of the massive destruction of the, the uh, World War II. Well, I think he definitely had a great deal of influence. In fact, uh, another quote you have in the book that I, I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, you say in page 194, he represented an evil influence upon other people. Many of his associates and followers affected world events. J.F.C. Fuller was one of two Englishmen invited to Germany for Adolf Hitler's 50th birthday in 1939. There are not vast degrees of separation between Crowley and Hitler. The connection reaches merely from Crowley to Fuller to Hitler. Both Hitler and Crowley emphasized, if not completely dedicated to, the primacy of the human will. The triumph of the will by Leni Riefenstahl emphasized his ideology. Crowley had his own approach to human will, his word in law, thelema, which is will in Greek. Um, could you comment somewhat on J.F.C. Fuller? I, I, I think you're uh, pretty familiar with him. I, as I understand it, Fuller was a, a uh, an OTO member, or, or at least an occultist, and he was also a very uh, high-ranking uh, general in the, uh, in the British Army and was a man who had a lot to do with tanks. And, and the yeah. development of tanks. Well, J.F.C. Fuller uh, had a connection with Hitler uh, very early on. When Hitler, I mean, excuse me, with uh, Crowley, Crowley had set up a um, 
an award to be given out to somebody who wrote uh, you know, a book. It was a thousand, I think a thousand pound reward. It was a sizable award. And GFC Fuller wrote a book about Crowley called The Star in the West. And that started off kind of a, a relationship between the two. Uh, eventually there's a falling out that took place that's very typical in relationships, uh, Crowley had with his followers. But, uh, GFC Fuller went on to write a variety of different books. He, he was, uh, very literate, much like Crowley. He, uh, formulated and learned from the events of World War One, where there was static warfare and devised the strategy to use mechanized uh, military um, tanks and uh, etc. to have a more mobile kind of attack structure during any other future warfare. And uh, the English, being kind of a more seafaring nation, did not adopt these tactics, but they found a lot of... Uh, uh, adherence in the German high command or the German war command and uh, he also was kind of a pan uh, Nordic kind of um, I guess you would say kind of an occultist of that of that stripe similar to Hitler and uh, he was one of only two uh, people uh, invited two Englishmen invited by Hitler to uh, attend Hitler's 50th birthday in I think it was 1936. Yeah. I'm just curious uh I know he had an influence on the Germans as far as their tactics. Was he, uh, or do you know that if he had any uh, influence on or any relationship with Guderian? Not to my knowledge. I don't know. You know, he was kind of more of a, doing my research on uh, on Crowley. He was kind of like a side figure. I didn't really follow up a, not, a lot. I just thought it was pretty interesting that he had, uh, you know, he had been, uh, there was a direct connection between him and Hitler. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think uh, as far as his influence on the German high command, I mean, I think that uh, according to my understanding is that, you know, I don't know Guderian in particular, but definitely the German military was definitely enamored of his writings. Right, let me ask you guys a question um, or, or make a statement, uh, and then I have a question. Uh, with the, with the, uh, the passage you read, uh, was um, with, with the, before Hitler was I am, is that, is that what that was? Uh, it was a statement that Crowley made, uh, right. I, I think, in Time magazine, according to, to what William wrote. I, I'll let him address that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you not think also that there was a slap at Jehovah in that one? Well, yeah, Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it's a direct reference from the statement that Jesus Christ made in front of uh, the Jewish, uh, you know, uh, you know, during the time that Christ was in Jerusalem. So. You know, he was uh, he was definitely referencing that straight up. All right, we, we, uh, and 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 the name Jehovah, in my understanding, is kind of I am what I am. That's what it means uh, right. in, um, in Hebrew. Does it strike you, gentlemen, uh, strangely if you think about it? That was in Time Magazine, correct, Larry? Yes. Can you imagine a supposedly real Christian country back then, looking at at the cover of Time? I, I, you know, I'm wondering if there was any kind of backlash toward the magazine for being, oh, so unchristian or whatever, let that happen. Or whether Crowley, and I guess you can tell us perhaps, William, did he ever get any fallout from that? Because this guy seems to be a little bit like Teflon. Uh, this it was, the, the reference in Time magazine was referencing a, uh, a statement Crowley said about, you know, before Hitler was I am, but it was, uh, it was in the Time magazine in 47 upon his death. So I just referenced that, uh, 
you know, article, it's Crowley saying that I couldn't, when I was doing my research, I couldn't find the exact place where he had said that, but Time had referenced him saying that. So, And, and the reason I just bring this up, and Larry, I'll throw it back to you. Just sure. indulge me one more. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I do. I do. Honestly, it's I don't, your show. Here it is. That's it. Whenever it's just get the old guilt stick. All right. Uh, and this is based on a little bit of what William and I talked about earlier in the day. But he makes that comment, and he's pretty much out of dodge by then, and his life's coming to an end. So I guess he could have done that. And if any, if there was any angst directed toward him by a nation, I guess it really didn't matter because he was gone. However, what really struck me interestingly was that this guy at least was around long enough to have some import in both World War I and II. I talked to William before about um, the mentioning of, of um, a Crowley with a, a, an individual who was a German-American by the name of Eric. And, you know, and there he was instigating stuff at the time, and maybe William gives a little thumbnail on what he claimed to be and what he might, in fact, have been. And then you see him again, like in World War II. I mean, for a character that spans two wars had a reasonable import in both, to a certain extent, in the espionage, if you will. He, uh, I mean, man, he just does not get included in a whole lot of books, you know, about both wars. So, William, uh, with that ha having said that, uh, do you find it interesting that he was pretty much active in both wars, kind of like behind the curtain? Yeah, I do. I think it's very interesting, particularly when, you know, somebody as important on world affairs as Hitler, who really the 20th century, I mean, unfortunately... Uh, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, probably the most important figure of the 20th century in many ways because of the war he created. And his ideology was so similar to, simple, uh, similar to Crowley. So it seems strange to me that so many historians and, you know, uh, intellectuals or literati, literary, literary figures have, mm -hmm. have, uh, really not, have overlooked him and not addressed the, the import of that, particularly, you know, in his relation to somebody who, was responsible for the death of millions. All right, I appreciate that, Larry. I'll throw it back to you. And let me ask you this, though. Did you think, did you know that Crowley uh, was kicking around? And he was stateside also, wasn't he, for a while, William, in World War I? Right. And so, you know, he came right at the outbreak of World War I. He was in New York. He uh, associated with, you know, the literati. He uh, was friends with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, famous people at the time, or was at least in contact with them. Uh, and, uh, he left right around 1919, uh, yeah, 1919 after the war and went back to England for a time and then ended up in Italy where he started his Abia Thelema. But, uh, you know, he, you know, the, during the time that he was in New York, he was in, uh, Greenwich Village. So he was hanging around and associating with all of the, you know, highlights of, of the people of that day who were, you know, in the literary world, and, that world, and that's what Crowley always aspired to be, is right. like a literary figure. Yeah, bohemians, you would call them then, wouldn't you? Well, bohemians, think. yeah, yeah, that's, absolutely. Uh, so there you go, Larry. I mean, if you've not even uh, been able to get into the first World War involvement of Crowley, I mean, this character, geez, I mean, he spans a, quite a few decades and, and is a real pivotal figure. Well, I think the Book of the Law, which Crowley supposedly uh, uh, wrote through automatic writing, uh, Crowley attributed to, I believe he, the, the way it's pronounced is Aiwas, uh, he, he attributed it to this, this being. And really when you get down to it, as, as William has said in his book here, uh, in his own writings by his own testimony, he repeatedly made contact with discarnate spirits, Aiwas, Alamantra, Abdul Diz, and, La, and Lamb. He 
he claimed personal authority from the secret chiefs, a hidden group of spiritual masters that shaped the destiny of mankind. The primary spirit he worshipped, Aiwas, provided him with the Book of the Law in 1904. Crowley referred to Aiwas as him, he, the ineffable one or Lord, and the entity as we now know, as evidenced by numerous references by Crowley's own hand, is the devil or Lucifer. I believe the Book of the Law was brought about uh, to help Crowley influence what, uh, in his book, uh, Hitler, the Black Magician, Suster calls a demoniac movement. In other words, uh, what Suster is saying is that Crowley was the primary human influence uh, that, that helped bring about the First World War and, and eventually the Second World War, and the Third will come, uh, because these this, these wars are planned by the powers of darkness and in and in the uh, the entity of Lucifer, the devil. Okay. I hope I've got that right. <laughs> no, and I mean just to follow on in your reference, I mean Crowley himself states right here: this being called Awas, an intelligence discarnate, who wrote this book of the law, using my ears and hand, his mind certainly superior to my own in knowledge and power, for he has dominated me and taught me forever since. So, you know, one of, that's one of the reasons why I call it titled the book The Prophet of Evil is that Crowley considered himself the prophet of the devil. And he, t Crowley himself, took responsibility for, you know, creating or setting, setting, uh, laying the groundwork for the ideologies that created the World War I and World War II. Now, granted, how much of a responsibility that should be attributed to Crowley is, uh, I guess, up to the listener or reader. But right, it's an opinion, really, but I believe it was tremendous influence. And that's why I believe your book is so important, that people begin to understand the real uh, motivations, uh, the real reasons behind the First and Second World War. And I believe that you're entirely correct in that uh, uh, he influenced, in effect, the events of September 11th, 2001. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's, that was the, really the primary impetus of, of my research or why I was researching Crowley, but then I recognized that his ideologies and his ideas were not just an influence upon 9-11, but a lot of the 20th century and Hitler. So, and, you know, the, 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 they, you could have taken Crowley and Hitler and put them in two places where they would never have any bleed over, but the similarities in their ideology shows how important they are. And w there clearly has been some type of you know, cross-fertilization be right. between them through GFC Fuller and others and other OTO members. And Hitler, in his early years, he was enamored of the theater, and there, he loved this one play called Parsifal, which I know for a fact is uh, was written by an OTO member, so it had all this kind of like... Like German, the Holy Grail. Yeah, the Grail and all this other stuff. Grail, this, uh, blood and so forth. Yeah, and then there's uh, you know his his attention his his uh, atta attraction to Dietrich Eckhart, who he quotes in his uh, Mind Kampf as like the most influential person. And and Dietrich Eckhart was a master master of the temple, much like Crowley was. I mean, right. they both they both uh, took took that title upon themselves. Crowley went a little bit farther and called himself called himself a magus and one of the seven most important people. Yeah, you really love to put titles, uh, grandi grandiose titles. <laughs> yeah, so, my point is, is that you know these these uh, this this kind of ideology and outlook is very important, I think, for people to understand because it shows how human beings can be capable of such 
uh, violence and evil really unleash warfare and you know destruction. It's, Can uh, I ask a, a question about Crowley? Uh, what you just mentioned, and I'm, I mean, this is a jump ball for both of you. One, uh, he seems to have done a reasonable amount of clowning up. And I'm wondering if, one, he did that so as not to be taken all that seriously so he could do the serious work afoot, or if, two, you know, that was part of, like, quote, his playful spirit, uh, because it, did ha- it has worked to a certain extent for, to make some observers, historians, whatever, say, no, nah, he was pretty much showbiz. It was really nothing there, and I think that's a, a, a big mistake. So what I'm asking you two gentlemen, do you, do you think that clowning or that showmanship part of him was a deliberate you know, like facade. Go ahead. Well, I can comment on that. I do think that it was deliberate. I think that he was a pretty sophisticated guy. So a lot of, his, and he was also kind of the, uh, he was uh, trying to become a uh, kind of a, a person of renown. So a lot of this clowning and public statements and things where he was always covetous or uh, always wanted to obtain the. Uh, the 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 press attention you know so he was always trying to do it with his writings or a public display so uh then you know that was kind of like his public also his public you know uh his face that he gave out but you know the more the deeper that you got the more serious he became so you know as a as a person with many facets cruelly you know as a complex person with many facets cruelly definitely had this kind of joking exterior but uh you know, once you read all his stuff about child sacrifice and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, his blasphemies and stuff like that, he, there's a very, uh, you know, his sexual perversions and everything like that, there's a very dark uh, center core to his to his character, I think, for certain, at least in my opinion. Larry, what, what about that in your take? And then I have to ask you a question as well. Well, I agree with, I agree with William that, you know, uh, he, uh, he was a very serious guy underneath, and he he did he did affect something of a clownish uh, you know persona. I think part of it probably is because he he kind of had the heart of a ham actor. I mean, he liked to uh, he liked to run around in these elaborate uh, outfits, you know, with capes and and turbans and and you know just kind of uh, affecting kind of a you know almost a comic opera look, you know. But uh, when you got down to it. And you and anyone who really became familiar with him, and I would think it wouldn't take very long before they saw the the seriousness of the man as far as his his intentions, and just how incredibly intelligent and how incredibly evil the man was. I mean, I uh, when you read some of his writings, it, you almost have to stop uh, at, at some point because it's just so disgusting yeah, and, true. and yep. vile. I mean, the man was just vile was the, the best way to describe him. Um. This is kind of interesting, too, I'm just, as an aside. But when you talk about this, and I think back, uh, and there's some other work I'm doing here that brings us to, the, to, to a, the forefront of my mind, and that is whenever you see the truly sinister and predatory people, I mean, I, even if you're talking about serial killers, I mean, I hate to use these terms, but like the really good ones, um, they're all brilliant. This, some, I mean, the most tragic consequences brought upon mankind, humankind, seems to have been the work of people who are just brilliant. You know, this isn't some just, you know, beat up little kid or something like that who grows up mean. And it's amazing time and time again. Now, what I wanted to ask you, Larry, on a scale of 1 to 10, first of all, first off, do you, um, what do you think the number would be to equate 
of whether or not Hitler and Churchill both knew there was a script? Gosh, that, that's a that's a question I've, I've never really been able to answer. Um, I would say at least a five or six. All right. Uh, the reason I say that is <clears throat> it's never really been clear to me Hitler's intentions toward England. Uh, when, when you when you start to study Hitler, you, you you begin to realize very very early on that he had a great deal of admiration for the British Empire. That actually was the second part of the question. Yeah, he had a tremendous admiration for the British Empire. Right. Uh, he, he loved the British crown, the British aristocracy, and he thought that the way that the empire was being run was you know was great. And uh, he really did not, from from what I've read and, and from what I can gather, he really did not want to initiate a war with with uh, Great Britain. In fact, a lot of people think that the attack uh, uh, upon Great Britain, which became known as the Battle of Britain, was really just kind of a a fake, a feint, uh, uh, you know, which kind of set up his real intentions in in attacking Russia in 1941. Of course, everyone knew from Mein Kampf that uh, what they call Lebensraum, living room, is what they were seeking. They wanted wanted Russia really badly. And, of course, uh, the Nazis politically... Uh, despise communism, and, and uh, the communists were their, their biggest political enemies. They were what they hated. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah, what, right. Now, William, if you can add into this, and Oblauer, you know as well, and this is another question I would like to ask of you. Um, William, is there any, con- and, and Larry too, have you, any of you come across anything that indicates that Crowley moved between England and Germany during the war? Oh, yeah, he definitely did. Okay. I mean, I don't know, now, during the war? That I don't know for sure, but I know that uh, he spent a great deal of time in Germany. In fact, uh, from Suster's book, I can I can read uh, a little bit to you about the First World War. And uh, for Crowley, a sincere and intelligent man had, despite these qualities, become convinced that he was, in truth, the B-666, prophesied in the book of Revelation in the Bible and hailed in the book of the law, who would bring an end to the Christian age. He welcomed the First World War not only as a vehicle for the destruction of the old eon, a baptism of blood, but also as the messenger of the freedom, which he believed would dawn upon the people of the world. The war did not have this latter effect. The people of the world were much too badly frightened to cope with freedom. Crowley thereupon adopted the view that yet another and more destructive world war was inevitable and would soon come. After the war, Crowley returned to England, found the climate inhospitable, and set sail for Sicily, where in Cephalu he founded the Abbey of Thelema, or Will. And it goes on to talk about his... his uh, Crowley had, had visited the Third Reich on a number of occasions, but, there was under, but was under no illusions as to its nature. He believed correctly that Hitler was a magician bent upon, upon changing the nature of civilization and of man. He was probably in error, though, when he stated that Hitler had read the Book of the Law and followed many of his precepts quite consciously. The truth is more likely to be that Hitler unconsciously expressed the more disturbing of his doctrines. For both Crowley and Hitler drew their inspiration from the demonic. We have seen how Crowley became convinced that another world war was imminent, and a pamphlet which he wrote in the 1930s is certainly of interest. And that pamphlet, I believe, was Equinox of the Gods. And uh, William references that in his book where he talks about how Crowley did some publicity stunts to talk about the equinox of the gods and it says Crowley 
really never abandoned his need to engage in strange publicity stunts. In the Daily Express of December 23, 1937, portions of a prophetic book of Aleister Crowley's were read at Cleopatra's Needle at 6.22 a.m. as the sun entered Capricorn by an Englishman, a Jew, an African, and a Malayan. There was a short speech by Crowley as priest to the princes. With his disciple Gerald York by his side, he proclaimed, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law to all the races of the world. He also proclaimed again the law of Thelema. He then gave each individual present a copy of the Equinox of the Gods. Publicly, he stated that he had published three times and that each time war broke out nine months later, that the might of his magic would burst out and cause a catastrophe to human civilization. He said that if everybody would do what he told them, the cat- catastrophe could be averted. And that was referenced in the Daily Express of December 23, 1937. Um, what I'm wondering about is, is whether or not uh, Crowley's moving about was an indication that there was a script. You know, what was it? Hess that flew over un- unannounced, more or less? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they slammed his butt in jail. It yeah. strikes me interesting if he was really trying to be an honest peace broker, and yet Crowley could move around. And that's, that's you know, kind of all where I'm going at is that if he was able to do that, then that tells me a little bit of something uh, about whether or not both higher-ups knew where this whole thing was going. Uh, one other question, too, by the way. Um, do either of you know or infer exactly who, not what, but who uh, gave the Nazis the uh, what we would have called before the Roman salute? You know, I think Suster references that, but I can't remember exactly. Uh, but I, I think uh, uh, the reason for the, the Roman salute, you know, the the what do they call it, the Caesar salute or whatever, is that um, Hitler really believed himself to be, uh, you know, uh, the the new Roman emperor. He, you know, he believed himself to be establishing a, no, a new uh, Holy Roman Empire. Okay. And the same, the, really the same with uh, Mussolini, I think, first started that, that uh, salute. William, you have any, any guesses? Do you know? No, I don't, I don't know. Can I, I'm just going to throw this out. There is a, I don't know if this is a, a true thing or whether it's turned to urban legend. Uh, there are some, whoever some are, that attribute it to uh, good old uh, Dietrich. Dietrich, interesting. Yeah. yeah, and then the story goes further that Dietrich gave um, Hitler that, and that in turn Crowley gave Winnie the, the, peace, the B sign. They both right, and that peace sign has has dual meanings. I mean, the peace sign also represents twenty three, and two thirds of one is six six six. So, people say that as peace, but you'll see some occultists lay that, uh, you know, three fingers well, down, two fingers sure. up sign all over the place. Right, and that was supposed. So to there's be... an esoteric and uh, you know exoteric esoteric, you know, dual right. meaning there, one for the public and one for the insiders. Which, in a way, makes me tend to believe somewhat that there was some kind of reality to that, even though we're not supposed to talk about the occult side of anything, especially the war. Um, but that would make sense to me in a certain, in, in, in a certain vein. So, uh, you know, here again, uh, you know, the man behind the scenes. And um, do, does anybody know, I mean, uh, again, did, did Dietrich Eckhart have any kind of, quote, relationship with Crowley? Uh, yes, not that did. I can figure out. I mean, I know that the OTO was, you know, it was a German secret society, and Crowley became the head of it. So... 
because it's a secret society, it's hard to discern or determine, you know, all their real connections. But, you know, Crowley was the head of a German secret society. Larry, what do you think? Um, I think Sester talks about that. I know that uh, he was influenced by Crowley. I don't know if he had a personal relationship with him, but um, he definitely was influenced by Crowley, according, according to Suster. And I think Suster would know, since Suster himself was a member of the OTO. Uh, he's dead now, but uh, uh, he was uh, he was greatly influenced by Crowley himself. And all through his book, Hitler, the Black Magician, uh, each chapter he references a passage from uh, the Book of the Law. He's very familiar with that, and uh, he, I think. From what I gathered in the book, Suster sees himself as a white magician. I think it's all the same stuff, but but he believes in in uh, that you know he's doing good with his magic. He he considers himself or considered himself a magician. Uh, it's interesting in, in, in his summary of what he says about uh, uh, the New World Order and and uh, what the Book of the Law is all about. And it, it says that nearly two thousand years of Christian civilization, which ultimately led to the domination of the world by the values of the West, have come to an end. That the end of the old eon and the character of the new was foreseen by artists, poets, and occultists in the dying years of the 19th century. That a remarkable insight into ensuing events was written in the form of a prose poem called The Book of the Law, which announced the new eon. That the 20th century has been a swift and unprecedented transformation in the conditions of life on our planet, including two world wars, the collapse of all European empires, and the destruction or inversion of previous values. As some kind of force, hitherto unsuspected by science, whether physical or psychological and moving in the depths of our collective unconscious, has impelled the destruction in poetic fashion. We have personified it as Horus, the Egyptian god of war, or else referred to it as an eruption of the demonic. That certain individuals who practiced the neglected and despised arts of magic and mysticism which involved the comprehension of forces like the one referred to, invoked this current to further their own ends, whether the attainment of the enlightenment and truth or the achievement of political power. That one of these individuals was Adolf Hitler, whom we may call the greatest black magician of the century, whose beliefs were a warped amalgam of the occult irrationality, irrationalities which Western civilization had for so long to press, suppress. Excuse me that both Hitler's success and Hitler's failure were due to the application of the magical world outlook he'd acquired, that the manner of his application was confined within the limitations of a completely contemptible personality, and that in consequence, the Third Reich was a negation of the human spirit in a blasphemous parody of everything affirmed in the true principles of magic. Well, I don't agree with that, but Hitler's personality complemented both the frustrated hatred of the people whom the First World War prepared for this adventure and the nature of the demonic force which he believed himself to control and which in, instead came to control him, its demon of nightmare, vengeance, and destruction which it flung aside, that this process of destruction accompanied by repeated eruptions of the demonic in the minds of groups and individuals is continuing and won't continue until the old order has been irrevocably obliterated and we can do nothing whatever that will halt this process. Uh, sorry that was so wordy, but I, I kind of needed to... Uh, get that out because that's really the uh, synopsis of the book Hitler, uh, Black Magician. Okay. And as far as uh, Dietrich Eckhart, it's it's very clear that Eckhart was a, a, a serious occultist and a black magician himself. He was the guy who groomed Hitler. In fact, uh, Eckhart said himself 
that that was his role, that was his job. Uh, I guess yeah. assigned to him by Satan. Yeah, well, he said, Eckhart, when he lay dying, he said this, this is December 1923, he says, Follow Hitler, he will dance, but it is I who have called the tune. I have initiated him into the secret doctrine that references Blavatsky, opened his centers of vision, and given him the means to communicate with the powers. Do not mourn for me, I shall have influenced history more than any other German. Yeah, so he, uh, he stated that, on, uh, and that's referenced in the Encyclopedia of Occultism. And, right. and Hitler dedicated Mein Kampf to Dietrich Eckhart. Yeah, and he said, uh, this is what he said at the end of Mein Kampf, he said, Hitler wrote, I should like to mention the name of a man who devoted his life to reawakening his and our people through his writing and his ideas, and finally through positive action. I mean Dietrich Eckhart. All right, let me uh, call time out for a second. We're at uh, the bottom of the hour, and uh, we've made references, Larry's made references throughout uh, this particular uh, series uh, about William's book. Uh, again, we we said, as you can see, uh, along with the audio, that the website is occult911.com. Uh, he's authored the book uh, about which uh, we've spoken much uh, about Alistair Crowley, but he's also turned out to be a, a producer now uh, with the DVD, uh, Occult Hollywood. So why don't you just break down what's, what's going on, William? And also, uh, I got a feeling that you're probably up to something else if you can give us a little peek into that. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I put together a couple uh couple DVDs. One is kind of has a visual study of Aleister Crowley, and that's you can uh, wa actually watch them on uh, Amazon Video, Video on Demand, and also a Cult Hollywood. So once I recognized that you know these numbers were important and they traced back to uh, cultism, Satanism, and I saw them in all these films, you know I kind of put this stuff together and uh, compiled it for you know at least a, as a reference for people to take a look at and see how how often they are. Used in, you know, public uh, public cultural references, and then I am working on a couple things. One is kind of the occult background of of Obama that I've been trying to get done. Oh. I think people find that, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's the yeah, that's the real relationship between Obama and all these guys is they have an occult connection. I mean, he's he's laid out some very serious uh, statements that tie him to skull and bones that tie him to uh satanism uh he uses the number 72 a lot and uh you know he gave some very interesting public statements uh i think in berlin under the you oh, know yeah, when he uh, made that trip over there yeah yeah oh. and then you know he he when when his victory in his and i think i restated this in one of our old discussions mm -hmm. but on his victory uh night he he recreated the the temple at uh at uh oh crap now i can't even remember uh but essentially the temple that refer is referenced in revelations is the place where satan's seat was and uh so and and hitler hitler kind of did the same thing he liked to he wanted to have that emulated in nuremberg but uh are you referring so, to brandenburg i'm sorry are you referring to brandenburg no okay. uh i'm i'm referring to the, Talking about Egypt. Yeah, no, it's the, oh gosh. The reason I say it, because he wound up getting a, a photo op at that famous place. I believe it's in Brandenburg. I don't know uh, where there is a novel that's inside a circle, a rotary, a, a, an auto rotary. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I don't know what city or place that was, but <laughs> I, I remember that was, seeing yeah. that photo. But, I mean, he hit a couple of places in the, the Holy Roman Empire when he went over there, which I thought was a very interesting trip. But I'm sorry, William, please continue. Well, I was just saying, he, he re, uh, Obama recreated the Temple of Pergamum that's in Berlin, oh, and that, yes, was, yeah, that was what he yeah. recreated, uh, a direct 
semblance of it yep. on for his uh, final victory speech. So you know and that's, that's referenced. Great, that's in, the great high holy seat of paganism and, and supposedly the 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 throne of the devil. Correct. Correct. That's correct. Right. So you know you can see the pictures of him and and he makes all these references. He makes occult references just like just like Bush Jr. did. And then. You know, I'm working on another, you know, couple. You know, I got all kinds of stuff that if I had more time, I'd put it out there, but I unfortunately don't. I actually have an assignment for you, Larry, so we'll have to okay. talk offline here. Okay. <laughs> um, Hopefully I can pull it off. Oh, I think you can. Oh, right. sure. do, do you want to issue that on air or off air? Off, definitely. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh, that's not good. All right. Now, I'm going to throw a question out to you, William, and then, and then Larry, please respond, and then I'm out of here again. Sure. Um you know, we talk about this and the relationship between uh, Germany and Britain, and, I mean, they're first cousins. It's like, what's the problem with you guys? And then, so here's what I want to ask you. What do you think the probability is that these were somewhat orchestrated uh, wars, but that, in, that the real purpose, perhaps, for them was everything and everyone that got caught in between this, that got mashed during both wars? When you think about all that took place because of World War I, um, which was a pretty much a well, Quigley would say it was it was pretty much a, a land grab by certain powers in Europe to include Italy, and then you think about World War II. I mean, was it about whacking the Jews? Was it about smacking France around? You know what I mean? So think about both wars and all that happened. You know, not 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 necessarily collateral damage, but direct damage. You know, what are the chances that these wars were constructed? Not as hatred between Germany and Britain, but to get some other agendas fulfilled. What's the chance of that, William? I think it's high. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, war is a time of great change, and people want to, uh, you know, capitalize on it at any time. I'm sure that I think that there were a, a lot of different agendas. Hitler always had a fixation with payback against France, you know. So uh, it, there, it wasn't anything that was a surprise when, you know, after they – the, the Germans conquered France, that he rolled out the same uh, uh, rail cart that, you know, the guy in, from uh, World War One signed the armistice and then made the French sign the capitulation agreement, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. so he, he was remembering what happened, and he was part of that bat, those early battles. So he, he got the payback, but also, you know, it allowed him time to institute. Once he realized the war was being lost, that's when the whole battle against the really the Holocaust ramped up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was his other kind of racially motivated, well, totally racially motivated, uh, you know, grievance against the Jews was really ramped up and done. And, you know, they threw, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a grievance against a whole bunch of different minorities, including the, you know, gypsies. Yeah, I think the, the grievance against the Jews also was a blood sacrifice to his, quote, God. Uh, I really, I think that the... The First and Second World Wars uh, were definitely uh, part of the powers of darkness uh, wishing to bring in a, a new world order, if you will, a, a world government, a world religion, uh, and, and it's the work of Satan. And I think that 9-11 was the kickoff of the Third World War. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. That's what I think. I, yeah, there's all kinds of, of uh, more, uh, what should we say, I don't want to use the word mundane, but uh, there were earthly events that that happened. There were there are different uh, actions taken by different uh, nations and individuals that brought on 
and there were social and sociological causes for World War One and Two, but really behind the scenes, the overall reason for it, the reason for those machinations, is coming straight from Lucifer and his minions. It's the powers of darkness, and in, and these events were just as uh, Suster said, demonic. Uh, they were brought about. Uh, I mean, it's it's a progression toward world government. Uh, you had the First World War brought in the League of Nations. The Second World War brought in the uh, United Nations. And the Third World War will bring in a world government. And it's it's all designed that way. It was also a desire to, to kill off as much of humanity and inflict as much misery on humanity as possible by that enemy of, of, of humankind, which is Satan the devil, who hates us uh with a tremendous passion. He and his minions hate uh, humanity. They hate everything that's good, everything that represents kindness, compassion, love, etc., all the good qualities that humans have. And that's because he hates God. And that's really what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. You know, if if we can agree, uh, if this is an accurate statement, that ethnically the Brits and the Germans are pretty much joined at the hip. But the French are... Yeah, there's a lot of... uh, a lot of overlap there. I mean, when you come down to it, sure. the Angles and Saxons were Germanic tribes that, that moved west into Britain but the French and, were, and pushed the Celtic people to the west. But the French were not part of that, were they? No. Were no. they Norman? Uh, I don't, you know, I really couldn't, okay, couldn't I believe, get into all the, you know, the genealogies and, and uh, you know, racial or ethnic. Well, this, All I know is that during the First World War and, and, and after, I should say after the First World War, that the, the Germans had a tremendous hatred for the French that they really didn't carry over so much to the British. Uh, they never made a whole lot. I mean, there was a certain amount of hatred toward the British for, for beating them in the war, I'm sure. You know, of course, you know, people that fought them in battle probably hated them, but, but I know, think overall that, that the Brits kind of, you know, were not considered the main enemy. It was it was the French. And in Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler rails on, a, I say Hitler, probably Father Bernard Stample, uh, who wrote Mein Kampf, probably you know, railed on about the French more than any other nation. I'm, I'm just going to throw this out, and just it's food for thought, but because of the three of us being able to, to dialogue here, uh, it has struck me that uh, the Brits were, were pretty much pitched enemies to the French to a certain point, and then it seemed the Germans took over, at least in the 19th century, when you had the Alsace-Lorraine problem and all that. But, you know, really, when you think about it, I mean, the French got absolutely beat to death in World War I. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of manpower they lost... Through the war in death, and then the second time around, you know, we make we kind of make fun of the French, and it's like a kind of a little parlor joke. But in, even in the Second World War, that they that they, you know, went belly up real quick. I mean, who could have blamed them? But the thing is, I often well, the reason they went belly up real quick is because they were stabbed in the back by a fifth column within their own country. The the French aristocracy decided that they wanted to throw in with Hitler because they saw Hitler as the the means of of. Uh, Stopping socialism and communism. Uh, if, if you remember the history of France in the 1930s, uh, there was a very strong left-wing element in France that had controlled the government at one point. That was the government of Leon Blum. Uh, Leon Blum was not a communist, but he was a socialist, okay. and he was an enemy of the French upper class. They they really despised him and his government, and they saw in Hitler kind of the the Saint George who would slay the the He's dragon right. of you know, socialism and communism, and and they really had many business ties to 
the same people that had put Hitler into power. So really, you had the the French upper class. There's all kinds of evidence of that. I could I could get into that. There was a uh, a book written by a man named Pierre P, excuse me Pierre Cot, who wrote Triumph of Treason, in which he had been a minister in the French government. Uh, I think he'd been armaments minister at one point, I believe. At any rate, he wrote a book called Triumph of Treason, in which he and I, I think I laid it out here in the series where he showed how the uh, uh, it went all the way from the newspapers, the intelligentsia, the, the aristocrats, and the French army. There were people in the French army, generals, and, and people in the higher higher ranks who uh, made it a point to betray the country and allow the, the German army to win. And they also had been the same people who opposed uh, modernizing the French uh, army and not getting you know new technology such as more modern planes and tanks that could compete with the with the Germans. Uh, last comment, and Larry, please uh, you know, go with the line of uh, question you have for William while we got him sure. here. But I also have to laugh because when you think about the Revolutionary War, the two nations represented for uh, the supposed enemy was Britain and, well, at least the Hessians, right, Germans? Mm-hmm. But, but who came on our side? The French. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. why don't you guys ever want to play with us nicely? You know what I mean? <laughs> And I, I, you know, like I said, they get a bad rap, but nobody suffered more, I think, in World War One than they did. So, I, you know, I just, I'm just bringing that out, and, and you guys have both said to a, a certain extent to affirm the fact that there's a whole lot of stuff that occurred uh, mm-hmm. while these two giants went after each other. So, Larry, take it away, please. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, uh, uh, again, reference a, a quote from uh, from William's book and have him maybe elaborate on it on it somewhat. And this is on page 195. Um, Crowley's influence is nearly suffused in the events of, of September 11th with copious numerological references and the formula of the New World Order, ruled by an elite, the strong over the weak, and a new form of serfdom. His prophetic vision of magic, Satanism, blood, and sacrifice burst into full bloom in the new millennium with the events of 9-11. To fully comprehend the events of the 21st century and the direction of the world, Crowley, the great B-666, prophet of the new eon or age must be understood all of humanity must reawaken to the problem of evil we must recognize must identify evil and provide a warning to others as all lines of history move forward to converge at a nexus point at the top of the pyramid the legacy of the prophet of evil alistair crowley casts a long shadow upon the events of the 20th century and will continue to influence events in the new millennium i was wondering William, if you could elaborate that on somewhat, and where you see things going, I mean, your your personal worldview, uh, do you, and I'd like to ask you specifically, do you see a third world war occurring? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that we're in a new, new next generation third world war right now, and we have been since 9-11. I think that uh, we've seen so many governments destabilized and uh, overthrown, whether they call it an Arab, you know, spring or all this other nonsense, it's still revolution, whether it's in Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, attempt in Syria, Iran, Iraq. Uh, you see these stolen elections. You see uh, massive propaganda, chemtrails, poisoning of the food and water, uh, this move towards population control through vaccines, just incredible lies on the media and distortions and it's uh you know it's a it's a it's kind of a it has to be seen or to me it's seen as a a war against humanity so 
Uh, I definitely think we're in it. I think that it'll probably continue to flare up until the real fundamental problem is addressed, and that is that uh, these people are really trying to reformulate the whole world and uh, do it, uh, you know, based upon uh, evil designs, you know, largely uh, formulated by, well, essentially the devil, but also his his servants on the earth, people like Aleister Crowley and Adolf Hitler and uh, there are people who admire them, namely in our country, it would be George Bush Sr., David Rockefeller, and uh, George Bush Jr. You know, Larry, with kind of a German twist of this as well, um, if, if I think we've talked about the fact that the only other uh, pope that took the name of Benedict uh, was the one that uh, presided over World War I and the Spanish flu. And now we have Ratzinger, who has nothing really to do with that order, taking that name on. And as what well, William just happens to have been a soldier in the Third Reich during World War II, go. and yeah. a member of the Hitler Youth, and then his predecessor too had a little bit to do with uh, I.G. Farben, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, if we're looking at this Third World War, uh, William has just mentioned it. I mean, it, it seems to me that that, that there, and if we agree that there's always an agenda other than two uh, belligerents going at each other that there's going to be a lot, unfortunately, that would happen through a Third World War. It would be the depopulation that the elites love. Yes. And, then and later, they always have. They always have. Yeah, and then, well, and, and I'm only going to say this. In the United States, the Spanish flu went through the country, but it was heavily believed that it was the soldiers who were vaccinated that brought that back with them. And there's a story that there's, you can read online about, um, oh, what is her name? Oh, what am I doing? This called the poison needle. Mm. Uh, or I'm not even going to try to, to, to do the name right now, um, yeah. which talks about a woman who ministered to uh, sick people in their neighborhood. She, her father and mother, they weren't vaccinated, and they actually could, could, could uh, minister to the sick, and they never got sick themselves. So anyway, that's another aside. But my point is, it's nice to have a killer loose on a population after the war because it picks off the weak. Whoever's left over, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, yeah. Eugenics. And you don't want to do it before because social, in a social, bio, biological sense, it's always been stated that, that human beings are crazy because they send, their war, the weak, they send the strong off to war, to die. But the weak, vis-a-vis 4F, let's say. Stay behind. Stay behind. So in this case, it would be that. And plus, if you introduce a la Spanish flu, 1918, 1919, whatever, after the fact, to me, that's like letting, you know, uh, what is it, the maggots eat the dead flesh, uh, dead flesh after the wound has been opened. So I think we, we're looking at something like that. Um, and I don't think that you, we're going to see contagion before we're going to see um, a global conflagration. Well, look at Gulf War Syndrome. Where did that come from? You know, I, I, I think it came out of a laboratory somewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I, we don't have time to even get All into right. that. But, but I think that... Uh, that had the same. It, it, it was definitely a, a part of the bio warfare eugenics program of the United States government. And, and all governments right now. I mean, it, this right. is this is here to stay with us. And, and as uh, William referenced too, you know, I mean, even today I look outside and on the weekends, and they've been doing this a little bit more. The chemtrails get heavier, and it's like, okay, look, I don't feel them. I don't know. I just don't like the fact that that's happening. And it can't be good no matter what it's for. But you know, that's the way things are in, in this particular time of, of, of the, the globe's history. And will certainly continue to be that way. So, again, uh, you know, thanks for bringing that into the conversation, William. And I just wanted to throw that out.
Uh, and again, Larry, take it away with uh, wherever you want to go while we got William. Well, really, you know, I didn't. I, I think I pretty well exhausted most of my questions, but uh, I, I was wondering basically what William thinks about this concept that Crowley was definitely a prophet. We were talking about uh, his going uh, and, and pulling the publicity stunts. What I never figured out was what what really the purpose of that was. I mean, just uh, I guess maybe to get uh, more people to listen to him, but but I really wasn't sure, you know, why he went around uh, doing the prophecies that he did. I know that um, in Suster's book he talks again about this deal with the uh, uh, equinox of the gods and. Here it says, the Master Therian Crowley has undertaken the work of Omegas to establish the word of his law on the whole of mankind. He will succeed, and as long as the book of the law was in manuscript, it could only affect a small group amongst, amongst whom it was circulated. It had to be input, uh, put into action by publishing it. And I was wondering if, if that's, that's what you see. You know, How do you see uh, the publicity stunts to... to uh, popularize uh, Crowley? Well, I think that Crowley was definitely had an evangelical bent. You know, he saw himself as a teacher or a world teacher. He stated that many times. Right. Uh, and, you know, when the Krishnamurti was set forward or <clears throat> set forth by the uh, Theosophical Society, he immediately went into action and tried to counter his, you know, the the uh, the movement of, I think it was Andy Besant and Charles Ledbetter tried to, you yeah. know, create this uh, matria figure he wanted to forestall that and claim proclaim himself so all these type of publicity things that he did uh, were you know part of his personality but also the way for him to attract followers like here you know here i he always had a solution just like all these other false prophets or false messiahs like um you know i guess l ron hubbard who was a follower of crowley they all had the, you know, they have a solution to all your problems, whatever it is, you know, and we right. can do it. And so he was always putting himself up there, and that's how he got additional people to come and give in. That's how he earned his living, really. Like any kind of spiritual con man, you know, he got people to come on board, and then he would try to milk them for as much money as he could after he went broke, you know, in the in the 1920s. So, yeah, he was um, a con man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was really. I mean, that was part of his part of the con. He was he was a legitimately evil person, but he also you know, was, uh, you know, he considered he had such a high opinion of himself that he never never really worked an honest day in his life other than writing. But uh, so that would be my my thinking about as to why he was always trying to get publicity was just to attract followers. And he did attract very important people to him. I mean, I've, the more, uh, you know, I wrote the book and just said, I'm done, I'm finished. But even since I finished it, you know, 18 months ago, I've learned more, and you know there were the Astors, the Jacobs were uh, affiliated with Crowley and knew him back in, in New York in the in the uh, the war years of the First World War. So Crowley's able to ingratiate himself with so many people through you know his publicity and because of his his repute or his ill repute, I guess. Well, William, William, now you did it. I got to ask you this, and by the way, you got great timing, Larry, because uh, we're we're really coming up to the hour. So yeah, uh, that was that was good to to say you brought, you about um, drained all the questions that you had for William. But um, I'm going to throw this out because uh, Larry, I know you're familiar with Kira. Uh, 
I really don't know her. I've, I've heard her speak. Right. Uh, I mean, you, I've heard her interview before, and she but did, I haven't corresponded with her. No, no, no. But, I mean, you know that she had done the work on Garfield. Right, and, right. and his assassin. That was, that was good work, as a matter of fact. Well, she's on to something right else, and this is what brings me into this because of what William just mentioned. And I'd like to just throw this out. Um, and let me ask you, Larry, did you ever read uh, the, the Secret Enemy? Uh, no, the, uh, what is it? The, the two books by Bill Hughes, Enemy Unmasked and The Secret Terrorist. Have you ever no, read them? No, I haven't read either one. All right. It's mentioned there. Here's what I'm going to throw to you. If any of you know anything, but I'll go with you, William, because one, you've got to leave, and two, you mentioned Astor. Yeah, you probably know more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's my show. It's your <laughs> show. I can stay on past the hour. I'm good to go. I've got, right. I've got okay. time. Uh, and Unless I, you're uh, trying to get rid of me, I will. I will. No, no, oh, no, 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 no. It's been a pleasure having you on, believe me. Well, I mean, he may be getting rid of you, but I'll stay. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's where I'm going. No, by all means, stay. But, I mean, like I said, it was nice of your family to allow that, too, because it's a weekend and such, and, and I'm not taking that for granted. So thank you. Thank all right. You. Here's where I'm going to go with this. There is There are a number. Okay, a number. What does that mean? I know at least of three versions of what happened to Astor on the Titanic. One is the mainstream and there's two others. Uh, it is very curious that he died on, on that ship when supposedly two others who were magnates, I think one of them might have been Vanderbilt, I'm not sure, uh, all had booked but then said, you know what, we're not going to leave, and they went back and, and they, didn't, they didn't sail. We all know what happened to the Titanic. Does anybody have any kind of indications that that Titanic uh, sinking stunk to high heaven and whether Astor was a principal for it? I have no idea. All right. I do not know. Okay. It would be interesting, though. I mean, I know that there are, there, there are plane flights and things like that. I think there was, what was it, plane 553? It was sometime during, like, uh, after Kennedy got killed. That was, uh, it was a fixed plane flight, and they, the, you know, people tried to get other people to get on that flight because they knew it was going down. You ever heard that one? Uh, so no, maybe the Titanic was like that. Uh, I'll have to send you that information. But there was uh, it's what, the one where Everett Howard Hunt's wife died in that plane crash. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, right. was, a, that right. was a fixed plane crash. She was meant to die. And they tried to get other people on there, right. all these other. And one of, there's an African-American guy who's very uh, famous. I forgot. He's always doing, like, fasts and stuff like that. But somebody tried to get him on that oh, Dick flight. Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory, yeah. They tried to get oh, Dick yeah. Gregory on that flight. Yeah. So they were going to try to kill a whole bunch of people all at once on that one. Um. Well, some some thoughts are that they wanted they, there are certain parties that wanted Astor's fortune, and that she uh, his wife was on that boat as well, but she did not die. Um, as the story goes, the women and the children went first, but the, but the other story is that there was plenty of room for other males as well. Who knows what that was about? Uh, supposedly, also that they shot the wrong flares in the air. If you can believe that. If you're in duress at night, you're supposed to shoot up red flares to see if you can, you know, at least get some troll or whatever's out there to help you. They shot white ones, which meant, hey, we're having a party. <laughs> well, somebody was, perhaps. Uh, yeah, they were having one, all right. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, it's, like... <laughs> it's kind of an interesting aside, but when I was in uh, when I was in law school, the first book that this guy William Kovacic, who is my professor, who went on, he's now he was at least under the Bush administration, the head of the FCC. But the first book that he gave us wasn't a law book. It was a night to remember about the Titanic because he tried to analogize how many mistakes that were made through pride and oversight and, you know, this can't happen. He tried to analogize that to court cases because what can go wrong can go wrong. So it was kind of interesting that, uh, 
you know, he made us read that. It was well, counter. Wasn't but, something counter. It was something kind of counterintuitive or unexpected. But uh, but for us on, yeah. on the level that we do things, I mean, I'd have to say, just thinking about how he approached it, that would necessarily mean that they really were mistakes. And I think kind of like where we're at, because if you're going to deal with conspiratorial incidences or whatever you want to call it or history, you, you take a look at everything and you got to look at it askew because you never trust anything anymore that comes out of mainstream. So right, I'm wondering, right. I mean, if he actually thought they were mistakes and I'm wondering like, where were they really mistakes? And as I think um, I had written to Robert K. Denton not long ago, what I find interesting, and this may be brewing for us as well. Um, and again, why I think that sometimes wars or, all wars are scripted. What in the world was in Napoleon's mind when he brought the Grand Army to try to go ahead and kick some Russian butt at what time of the year? And then Hitler, what, we're going to start? Same mistake, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go to Russia's doorstep in the fall and see if we can just get rid of them. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Viz, because sure. I, I, Suster addressed that. He said that it's not, uh, it, it's not as simple as that, you know, Hitler just became, a, you know, arrogant. What he was saying was that Hitler had been given some really bad information from some of the occultists that worked for Himmler, and that he uh, he bought into these uh, these ideas. And these occultists were uh, uh, the, the disciples of a man named Horbiger, who was uh, who had some very strange theories about you know the Earth, and uh, and, and it was basically an occultist, uh, uh, a bunch of occultists that had made uh, Hitler think that he could go ahead and kind of gave him the big head about going in at the time that he did. And he says, uh, the Fuhrer's War Directive 3710, October 1941, refers to the final capture of Murmansk, the Fisherman's Peninsula, and the Murmansk Railway next year. Hitler certainly thought that the Russian army would be crippled by December 1941, but as his directive shows, he envisioned fighting in 1942. As for winter quarters, it is difficult to envision where he thought these would be, for he had ordered the total destruction of places of shelter such as Leningrad. The real reason for the inadequacy of this soldier's equipment is to be sought in the pronouncements of the disciples of Horbiger. Hmm. Horbiger had insisted that his theory enable one to predict the weather all over the planet months and even years in advance. Consequently, Heinrich Himmler had employed devoted Horbiger's or Harbergerians, I guess, in the meteorological section of the SS Honorary Department. These confidently declared that the Russian winter of 1941-42 would be relatively mild. Hitler believed them, and hence saw no need for his soldiers to be provided with winter clothing. The results of this decision were disastrous for Germany. The first snow fell in early October. By early November, temperatures had fallen below zero. Lubricating oil froze and jammed the German guns. German synthetic fuel separated into two component parts. Dressed in light summer uniforms, lacking warm headgear, winter boots, protective clothing, or goggles to prevent snow blindness, thousands of soldiers dropped from frostbite or died of exposure while performing their natural functions. In December, the temperature dropped to minus 40 degrees centigrade, and the Red Army launched an all-out counterattack. Obsessed by the desire to, co uh, to capture Moscow, Hitler forbade retreat and ignored the conditions and which is true for fighting, but Moscow remained in, in Russian hands, and the Red Army steadily pushed back the German troops. Well, but you know, there's nothing like uh, getting your weather report from a from an occultist. 
Uh, really. <laughs> you know, I, I watched the, the, like the History Channel or the Military Channel. I think it was the Military Channel. That was also breaking that down. And the, what they came up with is three ma- major flaws, but one of them is no exit strategy. And I, I, I dwell on that because my thought was, if it was a rigged deal, it was time for the right to go down the tubes. And so they sent them off with, with everything that could possibly go wrong. Kind of hard to believe that, you know, and then you got to wonder, you know. Well, if, I think Hitler was, was so infused with uh, the, the demonic spirit. It may have been Satan himself that possessed him. I think it was probably one of his minions. I, gosh, I don't know how that works. I don't want to know. But I think he was so infused with this. You know, belief that that he was going to do these great things, he was going to conquer Russia, and he was going to be the great hero, and he really didn't care how many people died. I mean, it it didn't matter at all to him how many people died. That was fine with him. In fact, I think part of his strategy, according to Bob uh, Rosio, was uh, was that he get these the soldiers killed. Uh, this was part of a, a blood sacrifice to his uh, his god Satan. And I think the more people that were killed on both sides, the better he liked it. Um, let me just ask you, William, are you familiar with Rosio's books at all? Rosio? No. Uh, Ros- no. All right. The, the reason I bring it up is that uh, Bob Rosio uh, is a Christian, and he published a series of books. I think Hunting- Hunting- Huntington House was his main publisher. But as life is weird and everything else, I mean, in 1987, my wife and I moved out to Pittsburgh for some strange reason, and we wound up going to his church. And we didn't, I mean, I didn't know who he was beforehand. I mean, he was just a pastor and we went to church. And then later on, I find out what kind of historian he was. And after we moved back to Jersey, he sent me a whole bunch of books. And it was then in 1994 when I read, I think it was, does this sound right, Larry? A Hitler in the New Age or something like that? Or I think that's correct, yeah. It's, the title is similar to that, but not exactly. And what, what hit me, I mean, what a cement head I am, it was only then in 1994 uh, 13 years after accepting Christ as Savior and not ever even getting into the conspiracy game until, like, what, 2000, 2001, I never, I never put it together that Satan is alive and kicking and was, was manifest in that war. I think a lot of Christians are today, as I was then, thinking, like, hey, when's Satan coming around? We never realize the spiritual, the occult nature of wars and that he is most pleased when people are spilling each other's blood. Um, so, exactly. I, you know, this, this may be something you haven't even thought about because it was a slam dunk for you guys, but I'll throw it to you first, William. I mean, I was slow to realize that the machinations of the world are embraced fully by Satan, and these wars don't happen because two p- people can't really get along too well. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think that the, the, there's definitely dark forces that capitalize on on conflict, so you know, I, I, there, there. Hitler was, uh, you know, from a very from his start in the twenties was captivated. I mean, even before that, if you talk to like Kubiz, some of the historians for Kubizek were like, uh, oh, excuse me, some of the historians for Hister, Hitler were were rejected by common historians like his his childhood friend uh, Augustus Kubizek and Rauschening and stuff like that. People who knew Hitler, but they because they were uh, first person narratives, they they were weren't. Uh, talked about, but Kubizek right. said that Hitler had all these speeches, and he was always into the occult, and he would always rail, and you know, I mean, he would go into self. He would he he was capable of putting himself into a trance, yes. like he'd just stare off into space. So, you know, clearly he had some strange spiritual 
uh, leanings. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, from but, early, from very early. You know, Suster says that that Hitler demonstrated many of the traits of a black magician, and just what you were talking about uh, the 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 ability to to go into a trance, uh, the ability to control his breathing, and. Right. Uh, and numerous people have talked about the quality of his eyes, that his his eyes, when he stared at people, that he had a hypnotic effect, and that, that this has a great deal to do with his his charisma. And, and, I mean, if you look at Hitler, you know, on a film, uh, he, he's pretty much a mundane, ordinary Joe. I mean, in fact, he's kind of on the ugly side. I was just saying, can we use Doofy? Kind of, you know, somebody you... <laughs> probably wouldn't pay any attention to it at all. But, you know, he's able to go to these rallies, and, and all these people are just knocked out by him. It's not like he had movie star looks or something, you know, or, you know, he a tremendous physique, you know, athletic physique. He was just really, you know, pretty much a, a dork. Uh, let's remember also, he was a world-class <laughs> farter, wasn't he? <laughs> That's what they said. Yeah. I know, I think so, yeah. I think he had some problems. But, I mean, but, what, but what William said, and and we just heard, and as you just uh, expanded upon as well, that was what Rosio had in the book that shocked me. And then I never even heard about all the Buddhist monks they found dead in the bunker. Oh yeah, that was right. the that was the whole Aryan. They had gone back to Tibet to find the roots of the you know the Aryan race, you know, and their beliefs that the the Aryans escaped the great flood and they went to Tibet because it was the highest place in the world and. And that the, their ancestry, uh, uh, the, the the original Aryans, uh, had uh, had left uh, you know remnants you know there in Tibet. All right. Now, did, did when you well, how do you spell Rocio? Is it R O S I O? R O S I O. R O K. And as I said, I mean, I didn't realize quote who he was because that kind of information is never going to be embraced, you know, on the mainstream in Barnes and Noble. Uh, right. But after I left, he started shipping me the books, and I'm reading them, and that's when I'm freaking out, going, I never, ever put it together. And that's why now, what I'm trying to at least share with believers and non-believers, this, this NWO thing is Satan's tattoo. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what we're dealing with, folks. Right. And, and the fact that if you want to go fist fight with it, you're going to get destroyed. Uh, but there's a way out of this, and we've all shared that. Uh, but if you think you're going to go in there and kick it in the shins and win, uh, no, not at all, not at all. Yeah, here's uh, here, here's here's an interesting thing from this is from Rauschening his his book. I don't know if you, if you guys went over this when you're talking about or Rauschening says we, we that talked Hitler. We've talked about Rauschening several times. I've quoted him on the show. Go ahead. He did, did you do the there there over in the corner? He's there thing where Hitler's like lips were white. I think I talked but, about it, but I, I don't know if I quoted it or not. But I'll be glad to hear it again. Oh, no, sure. Well, Rauschening says that here he says Hitler was standing up in his room, swinging, looking all around if you were lost. It is he, it is he, he groaned. He's come for me. His lips were white. He was sweating profusely. Suddenly he uttered a string of meaningless figures, then words and scraps of sentences. I bet those are probably magical terms that Rauschning didn't know about. He's probably speaking in some kind of cruelly gobbledygook. But uh, he says, then Rauschning says, it was terrifying. He used strange expressions strung together in bizarre disorder. Then he relapsed again into silence, but his lips still continued to move. He was then given a friction or something to drink. Suddenly he screamed, there, there, over in the corner, he is there. Now, it's interesting that he says over in the corner is there because when Crowley was dictated the book of the law to him, he said that the voice emanated from the corner of his uh, temple. So it seems like, you know, these evil spirits are like, they like that little part of the room or something. But, yeah, Hitler was, uh, yeah, he was, he was demon There's some that. reason that they can manifest themselves through a corner. I'm yeah. not sure exactly what that is. 
Um, maybe I think that the yeah the corner is very important to Robert Johnson. You know the supposed channeler well, the of uh, section, you know yeah. the, the the blues. You know, it's yeah. like I think yeah, that who played a pipe supposedly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think that when he wrote his music, he would go sit in the corner and, and play it like that's really odd, odd similarities. Um, I, I would... I've seen interviews with old bluesmen that knew him, the guys that, uh-huh. that he tried to get into their bands. And one guy, I can't remember who it was, but one of the old bluesmen, he said, the guy was terrible. He was really bad on a guitar. He said, when we first knew him, we didn't want any part of him. We want, you know, we'd just tell him, hey, boy, just go sit down. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to listen to that. That's awful, you know. And he said, the next time I saw him a few months later, he played some of the best blues I've ever heard. And he yeah. said, I don't know how that's possible. You know, he couldn't figure it out. Well, I think I can. He, you know, he, yeah. he made a pact with the devil. And, remember, and that's the cornerstone of all blues, rock, hard rock, everything goes all the way back to Robert Johnson and the right. Crossroads. Right. You know, I, I, real quick aside, but then I, I want to get back to a, a serious note. But one of the things I've always wanted to do and I have not done is interview the author of, uh, what is it, Hellhounds on My Trail? Which, which was talking about uh, certain packs, if you will, that musicians have made. A very interesting book. Uh, I, I've not heard the guy around in quite some time, but it deals with, John, uh, with uh, Johnson's decision at the intersection, the crossroads, if you will, the corner, uh, and others as well. Yeah. But, you know, also what we, about which we're speaking now is also, if I, if I could grab the books, I'd go back and see if I were right but that when you deal with these situations in which it is insinuated or flat-out stated that someone has made a pact with the dark side, uh, I'm wondering we wouldn't see the same scenario in Marlowe's Faustus. Um, or the, I, I forget who wrote what. Marlowe's Faust, and is it Goethe's Faustus? Whatever it is. Um, I think Goethe wrote, uh, wrote, wrote yeah, Faust. Faust. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, if you remember that, and apparently the true story upon which this is all based Right. is of such a person who made a pact and double-crossed the devil and wound up with his head facing north and the rest of his body facing south. Yeah. Um, it has a tendency to mess up your whole day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Hello, I must be going. But um, uh, I, Well, I mean, I, it's just like the same thing with Lennon. Lennon supposedly made a pact himself, and they came and collected him, you know, over at the uh, Dakota or whatever. Right. I know, heard that, I've heard that uh, bandied about, and he was definitely... Into the occult and was very familiar with you know, that, all that, that kind of stuff. Uh, apparently, that is that's true. And man, you talk about really bringing you down because John Lennon was always one of my favorite musicians. I loved the Beatles, and when I found that out, it was just so depressing, you know, to think that he was involved with forces of that nature. All right, and now, they took him down. As only I can do. <laughs> <laughs> when you but hear but that, you know, there was something. Uh, there was a song that he wrote. Um, I'm trying to remember, but it's every you know everybody's a star is a is something that Crowley wrote, you know that right. everybody's a star that everybody has a destiny blah blah blah, and John Lennon wrote some lyrics very similar to that, you know. Now, uh, instant karma, you know his song instant karma is about that sort of thing. I know, take this You're on. You're a superstar, yes you are. Blah blah blah. Take this on now, all right? With all we've been talking about, legitimately without going too far afield, this ties in almost everything with the Germans and all this. Um, Gordon Comstock emailed me the other day saying that they may have been, that he may have come upon or, or at least became aware of a, um, a rationale for Lenin's assassination. Uh, a lot of people like to say, well, he was going to talk or he was going to he was going to lead you know the country in a revolution. And I'm thinking, and I think you both can agree, if there is any one album that is probably the sweetest, nicest, 
album ever made. It was the one he made before his death, and it's Double Fantasy. You know, I love my wife, I love my children, this is good, all this other stuff, and now he gets popped. But I think, Gordon, what he had said was that he was going to talk about the influence that, now, we've talked about Theodore Adorno, this is like the story that won't die, but Gordon had said, supposedly, it was Tavistock, which, then again, you could say, okay, Adorno might have been in there also, um, now, it's too, much too late for Benet's, that's for sure. So, what, what Gordon said to me, he goes, I think, supposedly, he mentions this in a posthumously um, re, uh, released article. And it might be in a Playboy. I think he said Playboy. I got I to take a look and see if that's true or it's Penthouse or whatever. Uh, and that would be easy to find out because, obviously, it would have to be very early in 1981 since he died December of uh, 1980. Yeah. Um, if that is true, then that would make some sense. Now, everybody wants to attribute the Beatles' change and meteorical success, if you will, um, with somebody getting involved in their music. Uh, Randy Morgans was very adamant about this and, and, you know, not wanting to waste his pearls of knowledge about music on me. He just said, you know, they did things that were even like mistakes and, and it worked. And, I mean, I'll take that. I'll, you know, my I father can... said that. My father was very accomplished on a guitar, a very good musician. He had been a semi-pro musician, uh, but at any rate, uh, my dad said, when I'm listening to these Beatles, now, I turned him on to some of that music many years ago. He said, I really don't like this, son. He said, because when I start listening to this, they do things that are really strange. And that's all. He just left it at that. He said, they do things that are really strange. Um, and, and this ties in again, Theodore Adorno, who is, you know, I, you read his stuff, and I mean, it's really thick. I mean, he was a brilliant individual, a sociologist first, but also an accomplished musician. And that's why John Coleman in the conspiracy, uh, what is it, the uh, uh, the Committee of 300, whatever it is, the conspiracy hierarchy, uh, says that the Beatles were there at Tavistock, and so was Adorno, and that's how it went down. Now, two people, one that's an author, say that's not the case whatsoever. I don't know, but now what Gordon introduced into all this is, and, and, and remember, Adorno was a, left Germany because of Hitler and came to England. Mm -hmm. Um and a sociologist, fine. And he had a lot of remarks about rock and roll, about which I guess he did not like, which means, okay, is that a cover for the fact that you work with the Beatles or is the fact that that's why you could not have worked with the Beatles? So all this is going on, but I, it's easy enough to find out in back issues of whatever skin flick, uh, skin mag that was, if there's a Lennon interview and if he mentions Tavistock, and then maybe, just maybe then, I think I understand that. And there's others that also say that just like what happened with Reagan, and uh, who was it, Rabin, in Israel, you have a supposed shooter, and then you have the shooters. So right. there's another thing going on there. Did you hear that, William? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, my story, my understanding is that uh, Chapman was mind-controlled. Uh, one of the followers of Crowley actually goes from Crowley to York to uh, Kenneth Anger. Kenneth Anger said that Chapman was mind-controlled. He also said that so was Manson, but... Uh, if, and, and there's some weird connection. I think that Chapman handed uh, Anger a bullet or something like that and said, this is for Lennon. So Anger kind of knew what was happening. But the real shooter for Lennon was the doorman, this uh, Cuban-American guy, is my understanding. Um, yeah, Chapman uh, definitely had ties to CIA mind control. Uh, in fact, he'd, he'd worked in, in a um, one, of their, one of their operations down in, in South America, 
I can't remember all the details. I, I'll, I'll pull it out. World Vision. Later. World Vision. Yeah, yeah, which was like a like a false front uh, uh, portraying itself as like a uh, a Christian evangelist group or something. Right. Exactly. Right. And the affiliation with World and the strange affiliation with World Vision out there was uh, Reagan's. Uh, the guy who shot Reagan's dad. What was their last name? Hinkley. Um, Hinkley. Yeah. Yeah. Hinkley's dad worked for World Vision. Right. Yeah. So. Well, and that's that's know. interesting also because Hinkley, uh, that family were Bush, Daddy Bush supporters through his uh, yeah. campaigns, and uh, yeah, it was known supposedly that uh, that um, uh, what was it, uh, John uh, Scott Hinkley, mm-hmm. yeah. was yeah. also close to Neil Bush. Right. In that Silverado yeah. situation, that's the he whole thing. He was story. also involved with a neo-Nazi group and got thrown out because he was considered too radical. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And that's Neil Bush? <laughs> uh, it's Hinckley. It's Hinckley. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, the thing yeah. is, I thought Hinckley was released into his family's uh, uh, custodialship a couple of years ago, and then I just realized, I guess a month or so ago, they're talking about how he now may finally get released. And, I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I don't get it. But I thought that was a little interesting. Yeah. But what, what was even further interesting is that he's going well, to be released. his goal. <laughs> well, yeah. but get this now. I mean, this is how much garbage this is. They're saying that, oh, um, you know, uh, yes, uh, Hinkley will be released. And he might have gone to his sister's care in Dallas or something like that. And she said, well, maybe that's not a good idea because the bushes are nearby. Like he might try to, right? And I'm like, those are the guys who told me to go do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I don't think he's going to bother them. <laughs> So, you can't any Democratic politicians they don't like. <laughs> but, you know, the whole story about Chapman walking up to some rock and roller on the beach in Hawaii and saying this is for John Lennon, that almost sounds like, you know, you've got a program here where you're going to inject that into the public uh, consciousness right. or subconsciousness and then make it happen. Now, I wanted to mention this. And or you guys the, the catcher in the rye, uh, which is has some connection uh, supposedly, intelligence agencies have used that book before, and, and I know that Chapman uh, was—I can't remember the details—but apparently, he uh, was obsessed with that book, *Catcher in the Rye*. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. what—that's what they caught him reading after he supposedly shot Lennon. As he went back right. and sat down and pulled yeah, out he just sat the down. Instead of people. running away and yeah. trying to, you know, make some attempt to escape, having just committed a murder in broad daylight. He just sits down and starts reading a book. Now, we may now understand why. Now, Salinger wrote that book, correct? Right. Yes. All right. He lived in New Hampshire, and for a while I did not live that far away from him. Uh, he was near the river, and I was on the other side in Vermont. But every so often, somebody would try to snap a picture of him. This guy lived as a recluse, and I believe that the story is correct. He would walk to his, uh, to his mailbox uh, like through a tunnel. I know wow. how, that, how strange that sounds, but That's the thing weird. is, well, he clearly wanted no contact, and you got to wonder for a guy who wrote as as you know, it's just as as beautifully as he did, mm, whether or not that whole scenario. Really well, yeah, I mean, did that turn him opinion. into that? Uh, I mean, why did you become that? I mean, I can understand it, but I often wonder after that, you know, that 1980 scenario, whether he was like, oh, oh no, in fact, you know what? Now that I remember it, I was there before '80, so it couldn't have been the Chapman episode that made might have made him be reclusive. He just was so. And that's why every so often one of the newspapers would try to get a photo of him because it was like trying to get a photo of the white buffalo. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, you, you, you mentioned something else, and we should remember this, because just what you said about Hitler, and then I think you just brought it up, William, and I'm not kidding around about this, but everybody in the world said that Charlie Manson was a schmuck. 
How in the world could he have had that kind of power? Are we looking at basically the same type of individual who could have been invested? Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Go ahead. Will. I mean, that, that, yeah. I mean, you, you, if you, Charles, Charles Manson had experience with Scientology in uh, jail. That's what's known. Well, a lot of people don't know that Scientology is, you know, affiliated with the dark arts, that, that uh, L. Ron Hubbard was a black magician, without a doubt. And they're always into hypnotism. So was Crowley. Crowley was into hypnotizing people. Same with Kenneth Anger. So you don't know, uh, you know, what's going on. If somebody's dealing with Scientology and they start doing the assignments and these kind of rundowns, these kind of funky things, they, they're titled one thing, but what they really are are mind control techniques where you kind of self-auto-program. And some people are more programmable than others. There's a spectrum of uh, receptivity, really, for each individual. Some people cannot be hypnotized, but some people snap right in and out. And those are the people's that the intelligence agents like Jolly and West and, you know, there's a couple other guys, one guy's named Brand or something like that, you and Cameron, all these guys, those are the guys they want to, they look out for, they farm for, you know, as the easily, easy receptive, easily receptive uh, hypnotized agents, and those are the ones that get used, whether it's right. Chapman or Sirhan Sirhan had a massive head injury. Uh, he was a jockey, and he had fallen off the horse and hit the rail, the inner rail that the horse was running around. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he came out of that, they could just program him just like a, just like a computer. Oh yeah, and he would I, I snap right in. Get no program to to kill Robert Kennedy. No doubt in my mind. There's a lot of evidence toward that. I mean, the, you know, and it's it's public, you know. But they're yeah. still, you know. Uh, well, his two both of his attorneys said as much. One was Lawrence right. Teeter. The, his new attorney is this guy who was uh, who was the the attorney for the guy who shot Martin Luther King. Uh, Oh yeah, I know exactly. Uh, me. But uh, he picked up. Peter died young. Yeah. His attorney died young, and so now they're kind of trying to go back through, and they're actually putting this through this federal case that that they're indicating yeah. that uh, that uh, you know they're trying to argue that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, they're actually on Black Op Radio with Leno Sanic. Uh, yeah. Leno Sanic does a lot of uh, interviews with people who are involved with the assassinations. Uh, right. the, William Pepper. The William Pepper. It's Pepper. That's right. That is yeah, the name. William Pepper. That's it. Exactly. All right. Um, now, here's what I wanted to ask you also. I mean, if, if you guys aren't finished on that thought, by all means, continue. Otherwise, i got something else to throw out to you. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know how we got off on that tangent. <laughs> I do. But it's my fault. It's no, but I think it goes back to what Hitler, hypnotism. I mean, and, they, and there's arguments of Hitler, Hitler using all these other different techniques to hypnotize his own people. Right. That those, right. A lot of those stagings and everything like that and it's all about the lighting. Magic. All yeah. about black magic, and, uh, and we're talking about uh, uh, Scientology. Well, L. Ron Hubbard was nothing but a black magician. Absolutely, and, and, and his own son even admitted that. Uh, yep. I read part of the interview that his son did, in I think it was Penthouse Magazine many years ago, and uh, he had to. He, the guy was in hiding at the time, you know, because his life had been threatened. But he finally turned against Scientology and started talking about how the techniques that Hitler used were the very same techniques that that his father used, and talked about. Sex magic, which is something that Crowley was heavily into, and, yeah. and how that you know you could uh, you could you know basically crack somebody's soul, you crack yeah. into their and just you know this terrible abuse of other humans, uh, yeah. of, you know sexual partners. Uh, there's something about black magic and sexuality that that just you know very much um, uh, go hand in hand. Yeah, uh, you right. know, 
Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly like absolutely perver- perverse sexuality. If you right, read right. about Crowley and, and, I mean, there's an apocryphal story about L. Ron Hubbard that, you know, can't be verified. It's hearsay. It's just one person's opinion. Well, this woman said, you know, uh, what, what L. Ron Hubbard liked to do is get on, he had this boat. He was a self-styled ship captain, and that was one of the ways he could avoid taxation and getting uh, busted by whatever country he was in. But he had this one girl on a boat, and he went, I mean, the stories that she told about him, and I mean, if you look at the whole totality of the circumstances of his life and what he would do to other people, they're probably correct. But what he did to her was so bizarre, and it was the soul-cracking. He would... Uh, Engage in the most bizarre sex magical stuff, and in his his uh, experience with sex magic goes all the way back to Jack Parsons back in Pasadena. Right, right. You know, around uh, and they were both the late, uh, late... really uh, Crowley's uh, disciples in a sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it's my understanding that uh, uh, Hubbard started Scientology on the day of Crowley's death. Right. Also, a so, character. I'm sure, uh, that's just a, ran, a random event. No, no, no. A, a person that should not be forgotten in all this, and, and I think this happened before uh, you came around the show, more or less, Larry. And that is when I had on Maury. Yeah, I, I've, I've listened to the interview with Maury, and, and that is one sad, sad interview. And what this does, William, it ties in a lot of this because, um, as I had other guests on and who were out there, like Kathleen Sullivan, uh, her family basically made her. <clears throat> a sex slave for Nazis that had found a safe haven out around, I guess, Huntington Beach or whatever, and that also called into play Parsons and Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Uh, Interesting. Very much so. Uh, it, uh, it, it's one of the most uh, intriguing and yet just heart-wrenching things I've, I've, I've ever listened to. It, uh, it, it, it really uh, it's a stunning interview it really is um and i'll let you know william too i mean again this involves with a resurrection of nazism uh more it was very clear um that she was offered up by her family and that all went up you know in california kathleen sullivan was offered up in southeast pennsylvania because of the pennsylvania dutch environment which is german and right. so and then there's what o'brien too what's the o'brien kathy o'brien, kathy o'brien. yeah i've never talked to her uh, but, I'm not even sure if her story is real, but you never know. But, but definitely, Maury. Uh, I, there's no way that I don't believe Maury's telling the truth. No, I, I agree. I mean, Maury's had to hide since, from what I understand. Well, you know that's interesting because uh, she would not return emails, and uh, maybe within a year after she was on, people were saying, "Listen, I, you know, I, I, um, I've not heard from Maury." Now we we went back and forth. Uh, for a while, uh, while Beyond the Grassy Knoll was still up, because she was being, uh, she was very concerned about certain influences on Eric John Phelps, uh, and some of the stuff that, that was coming out of him, and I have to agree, rightfully so. Sorry to drop names, but it is what it is. And his relationship with Greg Zemanski, who has to be the biggest phony in the, in the entire universe. So be that as it may, but she called out a lot of things, and I was agreeing with her, and I'm like, you're right. And then after that, it was over. Now, have you heard, Larry, that, like, say, since, like, 2007 or, yeah, well, gee, it had to be 2006 or seven, that she had to disappear? Well, I read an article, I can't remember who it was by, but they referenced Maury, and in the article it said that uh, some to the effect that she had disappeared, that nobody has been able to find her or contact her in quite some time. Uh, this had been like three or four years ago, right. 
and, and and that kind of sent a chill down my spine because I'm thinking maybe she's revealed too much about satanic ritual abuse and pedophilia, yep. which is a very, a, strangely enough, a very, I don't know if you call it a common practice, but it is widespread sure. in this country. Sure. Uh, there's, a, you know, JonBenet Ramsey, I'm really suspicious about that. I think that was a ritual satanic killing. Well, because of the time of the year as well. Yeah. Uh, but again, um, uh, anyway, uh, more, Adam Goriley got an email from supposedly Maury. I mean, it was a person who, I mean, all right, he gets an email. The email address is Maury's. Nobody's heard from her for years. He sent it on to me and asked me, do you think this is she? And I thought that was interesting. You know, Adam's a fun guy and all that other stuff, but, I mean, he's serious about a couple of things. He just wasn't sure if if that was the email, that, that kind of email that Maury wrote. So right. we don't know. Right. Maybe, you know, trying to compare her style or something. Uh, well, yeah, and she was trying to promote somebody else who was coming out with a book on something. So yeah. anyway, but, you William, know. I mean, the point in, in with these two women is that they share the same story about being raised up by their parents with, like, no compunction whatsoever about giving up their daughter for whatever they could exact from it. And she knew Jack Parsons. And she did wow. out there. So she wow. winds up out there. Kathleen, um, and in fact, uh, I always mention the fact that as Harry and I were listening to Kathleen tell the story, he, John's, uh, well, Harry's looking across the way to me, and he, he gives me an indication, like, he's got something he's got to ask. And I, I, yeah, I said, fine. And then I said, Kathleen, if you will, Harry's got a question. And Harry said, Kathleen, are you saying to us that there's a little Deutsch in Pennsylvania Dutch? And she said, absolutely. So my wow. point is, you've got them coming over to the United States. And this also harkens back to what was fictionally or otherwise promoted in the book Boys from Brazil. Because where does um, Sir Lawrence Olivier wind up? He winds up in Pennsylvania. Let me tell you something. I, I know you're familiar with that, Liz, but my <clears throat> my ex-wife was uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, actually Lutheran, not you know Mennonite or whatever. But uh, I've been to that area uh, more than one time uh, on uh, family vacations to visit her parents and, and relatives, and it would be very easily for somebody who spoke only German to blend uh, in, to fit into yeah. that culture, and, and because the older people there. All speak German. They speak uh, the dialect, you know, mm-hmm. known as Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Dutch, right. to each other in the stores, on the street, and everything else. And uh, I could easily see that happening. I mean, I'm not saying it did just because I saw that, but it it could very well be that somebody could fit right in, uh, without a doubt. And and that's where that goes. And and again, people forget because of California, for the most part, uh, that you know California is always thought of as the, as the state of all kinds of what you know, occult groups and, and religions. But Pennsylvania, before California, Pennsylvania was home to all that. Whether, right. you, whether you agree or not with whatever, I mean, where do the Quakers go? You know, where do the Mennonites go? So, well, it's places where they're tolerated, and they're, they're, there tends to be a, a once a tolerance of, of, you know, groups that might be considered strange otherwise. Once that tolerance is there, then, then people uh, tend to move there because... Hey, if they tolerate this, then they'll tolerate us too. Right. Well, it's just like Corley and Bohemian environments. Everywhere he yeah. went, every country it was always Bohemian. Whether it's Paris, it's Greenwich Village, it's the Bohemian part of London. Weimar Germany, yeah. 
Weimar Germany, every, everywhere. I'd like to ask you about that. something I forgot to ask you about. What do you know about his uh, his dealings there in Weimar Germany? Uh, what I mean, were there was he involved with the uh, uh, the art? Well, it's a, it's and, a good uh, question. I mean, it, I, I wish I knew more. You know, Crowley in those years was very uh, mobile. But I know that he was. I know that in one of the talks that you and Viz had had. You talked about Christopher Isherwood, and Isherwood was an acquaintance of Crowley. They spent oh. time together eating and, and drinking, and I mean, I need to do some more research on that regard. i got to read all the Isherwood stuff, but they also had the same kind of, you know, Crowley uh, was pansexual and Isherwood was homosexual, <laughs> so they had kind of know that. That's interesting. <laughs> pansexual? <laughs> Excuse me, but, well, yeah, I mean. Yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, trisexual, yeah. try anything. Exactly. <laughs> no, but go ahead, William. I'm sorry. So anyway, I would I would love to know more. You know, it's hard to get into that. You know, I'm sure that there's some German historians who are very familiar with that era, or that that might have emphasized, you know, what was going on in that kind of cultural environment. But uh, I think you know, Isherwood knew him. There's also uh, other English spies that Crowley was associated with over there, and I, right. I mentioned them in my book. And, uh, you know, I wish I, I knew more. I mean, Crowley wrote about his kind of adventures in that underworld, under, you know, in the uh, Berlin. I, I think he might have very much influenced that. Uh, you know, yeah, well, uh, it was a perfect environment for him because of the right. decadence there. But right. I, I think he may have influenced it. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, he wrote about all of his liaisons and his uh, affairs, and, you know, he, he was, you know, he claimed to have uh, relations with 3,000 people in his life so you know that you know he was sheep and other animals oh god you know, anyway <laughs> you know but and know, he wasn't so in the group kiss there, sorry <laughs> he, he wasn't in kiss <laughs> what, what's that he wasn't in the group kiss <laughs> oh, sorry sorry anyway he, he's, he's uh, that's okay he, i mean he always do this i don't know i mean <laughs> something wrong with it i guess there there is i mean getting back to your question there is a lot of room for like there's other places in my research that i just were or were hard to get uh get information on just like with his time in paris he spent a lot of time shakespeare and company and all these other you know environments in the golden age of paris but I can only see it through the eyes of people who are English speaking. I don't speak French, so right. You know, and the same thing with Italy. I'm sure that there's Italians who have great information on Crowley while he was in uh, Sicily, but you know, it's just uh, it's difficult to. The only uh, person that I know of, you know, that we we were talking about, the only one I've read anything from was Isherwood. I've read just excerpts from some of his books, and I know that Isherwood uh, was the guy who wrote the the. Uh, the script for the movie uh, Cabaret that was based on an earlier work of his. It was by a different title. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, Isherwood uh, wrote Cabaret, and of course, in that there's this whole thing about bisexual. You know, just people experimenting sexually and all kinds of weirdness. And uh, I did not know he was he was homosexual. I assumed he was, you know, he probably liked girls or was bisexual. Anyway, doesn't matter. But uh, I, I do know that that he wrote about the the uh, you know sexual uh, deviance and decadence uh, of that period, and he also wrote about the violence in, in the streets. You know how the Nazis and communists. Right. He was talking about you know many times you sit at a cafe and all of a sudden you know a fight right. would break out, somebody break a chair over somebody's head and that kind of thing. Well, something I wanted to mention uh, a while ago because we talked about the occult uh, vaccines, if you will. Uh, with Hitler and others, I'm sure. 
Now, I'm not going to mention the name right now because I just want him to be okay with it. And he's been a guest at other times. What happened was, now, let me just ask you this. Have we all watched Men Who Stare at Goats? I haven't seen it. I'm aware of it, okay. but I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm familiar with the, the information, but I haven't seen the movie itself. All right. Now, that's, that's kind of the light side. It's what's been given uh, to people for general consumption. I will admit, though, that when it came out in November of that year, whatever that was, I had taken note during the shows that November, that November, whatever year it was, I don't know, 09, 10, whatever, uh, was a very heavy jingoistic month. They came out with a new, I don't know, Xbox thing, you know, with the new war thing and all this stuff. It, it just was very heavy military. Uh, however, that's for general consumption. What this individual told me while he had to do work as a contractor in the Pentagon, he said with regard to um, occultism, really interesting stuff that was going on in some rooms in that place. And that makes me, that, that makes me wonder now, too, in the whole of this, with those who wage war and such, you know, are, are we really looking at the evil side very much a partner in no matter who goes into, into battle? You know what I mean? So we're no different in, in a sense than anything else if, in fact, what this individual said was true, and I believe it was, that there's like a certain, you know, wing, if you will, that works on certain things. And I think we saw a certain manifestation of that vanillaized in Men Who Stare at Goats. All right, and that's a... A pretty hefty statement. Uh, do any of you want to uh, uh, hit at that? Uh, I can. I can talk to that. I mean, Hitler had his own, like uh, you know, occult orders and occult and Anna Nerby and all these other departments through his, a variety of his uh, administration administrative bodies in Germany working on that. And the U.S. has always been in, through the CIA experimenting with mind control, the effect of drugs and. Uh, you know, the final, the final frontier is really the spiritual, uh, stuff, you know, the ritual magic and, uh, it's attendant, you know, uh, practices. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, and it's always been there and it goes back even to the Old Testament people doing stuff like that. These, these, and, and different groups of people going to war and, you know, having blood sacrifices before wars and all kinds of things like that, and actually sacrificing the people they've captured, whether it's the Aztecs or Mayans or something. So it shouldn't be as a supreme surprise that there are parts of the occurred American uh, military that are doing stuff like that. I know for a fact that Michael Aquino, who is a mm. member of the oh, yeah. Temple of Satan or Set or whatever yeah. you want to call it, was was is a ranking colonel, a fairly high, well-established guy who's experienced with uh, you know, psychological operations. I mean, I've read one of his He was big in the document program in Vietnam. Yeah, I've read one of his documents that was published. I'm sure there's a, <clears throat> ten other ones that are, you know, for only military eyes only, but uh, he went from cyborg to mind war. I mean, he, he wanted to take psychological operations and just make a constant uh, assault upon other people's minds, part of the next generation of warfare, and I think we've seen that played out after 9-11. Uh, confusion, dread, Fear, and yeah. I know that he co-wrote that with this guy Valelli, who is on Fox News all the time. So, you know, there's Colonel. kind of a uh, allusion to him in, in the movie Apocalypse Now, where they come uh -huh. in with with the helicopters and they're playing the the ride of the Valkyries. Yeah, Bogdan. And uh, yeah. you know, just really trying to, and then just start shooting up this village. I mean, just blowing it to pieces. And a, kind of a 
you know, a psychological terror uh, technique that they're using there, and that's, I believe, kind of an allusion to uh, Aquino and the stuff he was trying to do in Vietnam. Also, it's very very Germanic also, by the way. Let's not lose sight of that. But but, because it's Wagner. But go ahead, uh, what are you going to say? Well, I was just, I was just, uh, you know, bolstering your statement that I, I, I don't have any evidence that it's happening inside. I don't know who your contact is at the Pentagon, but you know, it shouldn't come as any surprise if it's done hap- if it is happening now. And considering the people who are in power, it shouldn't, you know, surprise. it shouldn't be a surprise at all. Um, uh, also, I just want to ask this. You now, just popped in, but this isn't the exit question I was thinking of, and that is, I'm wondering if there's something ritualistic about this or whatever it is. But, I mean, the mainstream news can do whatever it wants to do uh, because, well, it's, it's told exactly what to let out and what not to. So they're, they're the supposed gatekeepers, but they really aren't. So mm-hmm. given all that we've said just now, I'm like, okay, so what is up with the four Marines pissing on the Taliban's? Oh, man. Is that supposed to mean something? I mean, <clears throat> what is this all about, really? I don't know what, you know. It's, uh, I don't know why anybody's that surprised about it in a way because, uh, you're talking about warfare, which is the most, uh, horrible thing that mankind can engage in. That's right. And, uh, this obviously shows hatred and, uh, contempt for the enemy. And I'm not saying it's right. Uh, I'm not saying that they should have done this, but I don't know why people are so shocked by it all. I mean, uh, I guess the thing that really gets me a lot of times about American culture and about the way Americans look at the world is this dumb butt naivety. The, the, yeah. I mean, what do they think those guys are there for? They're a sniper team. They kill people for a living. But why let it be you know? seen on mainstream media? You would yeah, never let yeah. that get out unless there's a reason. Yeah. That's what's I don't tr- know. And also, they mention this, and we all understand what this is at. And he goes, oh, they said something about the golden showers. Well, I tell you what, I think what it is is kind of uh, desensitizing the American public to war and the cruelties of war. If you remember the thing with Abu Ghraib prison, you yep, remember how that just got, yep. you know, I mean, it shocked yeah. the heck, heck out of people, you know, at first. And then it just kind of like, well, you know, just kind of, a, you know, some guys having a good time blowing off a little steam, you know, and it kind of desensitized the public. Um, and I think that may be it. It's like if you show people this sort of thing over and over again, then they become desensitized and they don't think much of it anymore. And it allows them to be more malleable for, uh, you know, uh, the people that will be in the military in the future. Uh, yeah. Leading to my next question, but William, you want to weigh in on that? I mean, is there something else going on that's that's ritual there? I don't know. I, I, I agree with Larry. I mean, I think that that's it. It's just de- further desensitizing and the new normal, you know new normal of this type of violence. And we've seen pictures of all kinds of, like that guy throwing the puppy off the ridge and all this other stuff. You know? Yeah. And it, so. it goes into the sexual realm, too. It's like uh, Madonna gets up and, and gropes, uh, who is it, Britney Spears at the, at the award show, uh, the Grammys or whatever, you know, and kisses her on the mouth or, you know. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure, it's okay to be a lesbian. It's okay, you know, this form of sexual activity is, is you know, here's two you know, big stars doing it, you know, for for you kids out there in the audience. You know, this is okay. And I, I saw an interview that Madonna had done with a, 
uh, a magazine. It was like a gay-oriented magazine, and she said, well, if we just keep showing it over and over and over again, it will be accepted. Are, are you but trying to that, tell me that's that... That's the whole point, I guess. Are you are you saying then that in essence it it breaks through another threshold where people yeah. will get inured to this? Yeah. All right. Yes, I would agree with that. That's all I can. That's all I can see. I mean, I, yeah. you know, if there's some other reason, let me know. All right. Now this ties in, and this is the exit question because you had mentioned before, and you and I had talked about it elsewhere, about the movie um, Cabaret, which I you know I didn't understand what was going on uh, pre World War II in Germany. Um, I guess we had something like that to a certain extent with post-prohibition. We went through that little flapper thing and all that, uh, but it seemed like to die away. I think the decadence that was portrayed in that movie, I think, was at least supposed to tell us that this is a necessary step toward where Germany's mindset would be to let them go to war. That's my guess. I don't know. But what I'm asking is this. Since really the, the uh, foundation block for what we have done, Larry, uh, you know, these 22 sh- uh, shows was somewhat based on ominous, ominous parallels by Leonard Peikoff, uh, who said, look, you know, w- we are headed the same way. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. So having said that, I'm going to go to you first and then uh, William, uh, if you would. Um, we can make a lot of what's going on and make it work to our basic schema. I don't think we're doing that. I think that it is just human behavior, it's civilization behavior. It's been like this forever. But we're the last, or at least the most recent manifestation of it. What am I saying? It was hard for me to understand, and William, you do, and and Larry, you do, that Germany was a high culture place. I mean, I would always equate that for some reason with France and any other place but Germany. But Germany was where it was at, at that particular time. And then I think I can say this accurately, some sort of decay began. Right. Well, so, this is, the, the Nazis made a great deal of hay off that. I mean, they uh, they went to, you know, uh, the more conservative elements of German society, you know, middle-class people, you know. Uh, they, they, they brought out that, you know, this bohemian thing, the, the leftist, you know, the... Uh, are bringing about is is you know destroying our what we need is you know the the a culture of hard work and you know the peasants on the farm you know and and the family structure and, and you know personally I agree with that but they were just they were just using that as as a means of getting into power because really when you look at the Nazis themselves and in particular the brown shirts and their and their leadership they were a bunch of flaming homosexuals yeah uh, you know it it was a uh, you know, they they uh, they even went. There was a big uh, scandal several times in in major German cities where they would you know go and and uh, make out with their boyfriends, so to speak. You know, or even uh, you know it, it made it very obvious to to the public you know that they were homosexuals. And then if anybody objected to it, you know they would start a fight and beat the heck out of everybody. Uh, it was a you know uh, the the decadence there. Was something though that that to the unsuspecting public, who didn't know how corrupt they were, uh, they used it against their opponents and, and said, "Yes, we're going to get rid of all this when we come to power." And, and they even had an art show uh, in Berlin in, in the 30s after they had taken over, which showed decadent art, and it was much more popular than than the Nazis. <laughs> you know, approved art shows that they had. Well, I mean, that, that was part of my question. So finish this off with this uh, edition, and, and we'll have uh, William also answer that. 
And that is, okay, if we are in some kind of extreme or accelerated uh, moral decay, and I'm not even talking about Christianity, I'm just talking about, you know, what what was once prurient is now normal. Uh, are, are we just missing a little bit more of the nationalistic fervor, which I think we really need? We had that in 2001. Is that the spark that finally turns us into a Fourth Reich? And that's where I'll leave it. Go ahead. My my answer is I think so. I think that uh you know, I think that the the society has probably been propagandized enough and but I, I hope I just hope that people are starting to wake up and realize that the the enemy isn't outside the door of this country, it's inside and the people who are using the propaganda and the people who did nine eleven are the real uh, real enemies, just like Hitler did. You know, he tried to convince that everybody outside was the problem when he was really the the real destroyer of the country. And uh, you know, I think that that's that's the danger is that you know they're trying to put, goad us into wars that we don't even need to fight. And I think that's where Ron Paul is at least correct in that sense. Is like a lot of these wars are unnecessary, and we're being conditioned to believe that there's the only solution. You know, is uh, more blood and violence, I guess. Uh, okay, Larry, anything? Uh... Well, I mean, when you when you look at American society, one out of these are statistics uh, that that don't lie that they give you a portrayal of a society. One out of two American marriages ends in divorce. That's fifty percent. Uh, you know, I can say that in my own case, I'm divorced. Uh, you look at the schools; they don't teach anymore. The schools are. Basically, in certain uh, inner cities, are like uh, they're jungles, you know, like the old blackboard jungle, jungle of you know the the famous '50s movie. Glenn I mean, it's much Martin. worse in these schools. Mm-hmm. You've got drugs are an epidemic in this country. I mean, they're everywhere. Tons and tons of uh, of, of people are addicted, you know, are are using you know drugs, even hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Uh, you've got basically moral decay everywhere you look i mean the whole i don't think there's a homosexual agenda in the in the sense that you know a bunch of leading homosexuals got together in in a cloakroom somewhere you know in a in a back room somewhere in chicago and goes yeah well this is what we're going to push you know this is what we want to do but i mean there is a homosexual agenda there is an agenda uh you know where they want to be tolerated i mean i think that's the whole thing with gay marriage you know uh, they want to be tolerated and they want to be seen as normal and they're pushing that as a norm. And I mean, anything goes. I mean, I think the next one they're going to push for is pedophilia. I think they're going to push for people, you know, being able to have sex with kids and that being legal or at least that being tolerated. And I mean, pedophilia apparently is rampant in this country. I mean, just look at the Penn State scandal. Uh, yeah, which wants to go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's exactly. something going on there. I mean, I see this country as being morally a cesspool, uh, and obviously there's a lot of people who, who you know are trying their best to live decent lives. But I mean, it's really tough to raise kids nowadays. I mean, my sons are both grown now, but I mean, all the influence around, you know, no matter how hard you try, you know, the kids are, you know, are influenced by their peers and and uh we're we're in a, we're in big trouble i mean our society uh i mean you walk through uh 
a large city in the United States anywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter. It could be New York, Seattle, L.A., wherever, uh, Dallas, whatever. And there's a sense of fear. There's a sense of, uh, of decadence. There's, you know, uh, it, it's really scary that there's an awful lot of places, uh, you know, where a person who is white can't go into that neighborhood and not uh, be taking a big risk of, you know, getting the hell beaten out of them and robbed. Uh, or killed. Yeah, I mean, in some of these cities, it looks like a neutron bomb hit. Like, there's no businesses. The banks have done a great job of uh, stripping the wealth out of the country. And, uh, I mean, the banks really have done to the United States what the Nazis or the communists could never do, which is totally denude it of all of its wealth. I mean, you have people who are homeless when you have the banks holding on to, like, 9 million homes and not putting them on the market right. so that it doesn't collapse. So their rationale is we've got to stabilize these prices while people are living in their car and dying of starvation in the United States. Right. So, you know, and, and you jobs want to talk are all about going overseas. The yeah, jobs are all going overseas. Um, the, the political policies are insane, and the people in Washington are... They're not. They don't make well. Well, calling them people is is probably the highest platitude you can give. Them. You're right. Well said. <laughs> uh, but you know, and, and and here we go. Finally, and that is, if you have internal problems that are created by the uh, upper level, shall we say, um, when the masses finally get kind of like a wind of this, the best thing to do is to tell them it it comes from without. It's an external right. thing, and that's where I think right. we're getting prepared. I.e., a false flag attack like. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, it's always it just goes back to how correct George Orwell, Eric Blair was. Blame it on a foreign enemy, while the internal guys are the ones who created the feudal estate. Look at how little we've built and created over the last 12 years since 9-11 in this country. Who has redone their house? Where's the more house building coming from? It's almost like it's stagnated. It's actually de- degraded while we spent all this money on bogus wars. I mean, it's not like Hitler was, I mean, it's not like Blair was reciting a playbook, oh, no. but he just knew no. how the system worked. Right. Blame it on That's an eternal right. enemy, solidify the the class structure, and, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I, that's one of the things that disgusts me, among other things, about uh, Alex Jones, is he's always saying the international, the foreign loan banks or something like that. He always repeats, well, that's a bunch of hooey. The banks are right there. The banks that cause the problem are right down the street. They're two blocks away from where I live. Well, it was, all, it was international, international Jewish conspiracy. Yeah. You know, they were responsible for communism and they were responsible for capitalism. Well, which is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. So, you know, just blame the other guy when it's the real problem. The real problem of America is in country. It's not. It's nothing outside our borders. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a spiritual it on problem, I believe. Yeah. Well, well, I agree with that too. Problem of greed, but, but greed is really a spiritual condition. It, it's an evil yeah. spiritual condition, I think. Oh, I agree with that too. I mean, it's not even, greed isn't even about money. It's about you know wanting to have more than the other guy and not have some kind of egalitarian sensibility. Like I've got it all, you're nothing. You're eating out of garbage can. I get right. steak. Right. I mean that's it's and that that's the wickedness of it. It's like you could some of these people and the banks could afford to have people living in a comfortable environment, but you know they're but, not you know, going to allow always taught us to to treat others. Of the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But but here in this country, it's a big joke. Yeah, do unto others before they do unto you. You know, it, it's the, the whole idea of American culture is get as much as you can together as soon as you can and retire. You know, and screw anybody that gets in your way and to hell with everybody else. Who cares about them anyway? 
there there is a lack of concern, a lack of compassion for other people, and just a you know a selfishness which is brought on by a sinful nature. And it's a spiritual condition. Okay. And, I mean, it's been like that. You know, uh, I'm, it ain't nothing new. I mean, this been like that for thousands of years. Ah, come on, Larry, you're a Christian country. We're not like that. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. I mean, you, you, we all stand back, and I mean. Yeah. We got to carry yeah. on with our lives. I mean, yeah. and uh, we, God blessed us and, and patted us on the head and said, "It's okay. You can go ahead and kill those Indians. It's all right, you know, because you're America and this is a Christian country, and anything you do is right." And, and you know, a lot of Americans just don't seem to get the idea that we're going around the world exploiting that. I mean, the third world. The reason the third world's in the condition it's in is largely because of American corporations. <laughs> Listen, all right, hold on. Before we go any further, and then we yeah. we got we to bring it to an end, the yeah. one thing I have to laugh at, and we've talked about this, all of us have, corporations have been farming jobs out since the 70s, but they, but they continue to do it, even in the face of the, uh, the employment problem we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verizon uh, and J.P. Uh, Morgan have been farming jobs out, and that's just two. They're not the only ones. So my, I have to laugh because when I look at the politicians now, when they get into their um, whore mode and they want to, like, have to actually work, I mean, move amongst the unwashed masses, right. they're blaming, they're, they're going to they're gonna make job creation and they're calling job destruction on Obama. But I'm laughing going, does not, I mean, the, I wish somebody would answer the question. They're all the be... same. I mean, it, well, they're this... all run by Wall Street. I mean, the corporations, that's, you know, we've talked about this many yes. times. Mussolini said the definition of fascism, he, he said fascism should really be called corporatism because fascism is a, a merger of the corporation and the state. And that's really what we have in this country. But, Larry, that's the point. I mean, I sit there every morning when we wake up to the Today Show. Why I do that, I don't know. I'd rather hit myself in the head with a brick. But I watch this stuff, and I'm like, uh, I look you at Mitt. Pain. Well, I mean, I look, I look at Mitt Romney. He looks like a little kid who's trying to get as much out as he can because he needs a. a, a he a, is a corporate raider. That's what he I is. Know. That's what he does for a living. I mean, they talk about this thing with Bain. I mean, what is he, he goes in and they fire all the people that he possibly can, and, and you know, and, and scale the the operation down and sell it for a profit. It's a corporate raider. That's what the man is. I mean, uh, Wall Street, the movie Wall Street. I mean, if you've ever seen that, yes, we have. That's what that dude is, man. Is I mean, and he comes on. Look at me. I've got a big family. You know, woo! I really, I have family values. No, you don't, you sob. What about the families of all those people whose jobs were lost because you went in there and, and started cutting people? Larry, care less. You know? Larry, yeah, back I'm away from the phone. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're gonna have to hose you down <laughs> after this. But my that's okay. Step my away point from the microphone. But my point was they don't talk reality. You want to talk about job destruction? It happened with corporations, and none of you people, and we know why, are going after them. Occupy Wall Street, which has a little bit of a platform, is too busy. And and this is another jaded, I'm sorry, movement. They're going after the salaries that one percent get. I don't care about that. Let them have their one percent. Just don't ship the damn jobs overseas. And yeah. that's what we should be talking about. Well, that's the thing. It, it, you know, there's no way that an American worker can compete with, say, a Chinese worker. The average Chinese worker makes about 50 cents an hour in a factory. And, and on top of that, the reason he can make it on 50 cents an hour is because in a, in a communist system, he has, he has his housing is paid for, is provided for him. 
His medical care is provided for him. He uses public transportation, so therefore he does not need a vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. But, but Larry, here's you the cannot pro- compete with that in right. this country. Here's the problem. That's okay. Fine, you're going to do that stuff? Yeah. But what has always bothered me, I, I'm, I'm not even talking to the microphone. I'm talking to something else. I'm getting worked up, too. Um, <laughs> but, but my problem was is that when they – and this, this is what I said back when I was a kid in the 70s, which I think I actually spoke truth because it was so, like, common sense, but somehow, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't work. But when you, when you take your means of production out of here and pay those people 50 cents an hour – but you sell that sneaker or whatever it is for 50 bucks a pair, which mm-hmm. nobody in the world could afford except, guess who, Americans. Mm-hmm. So goddamn you for pulling the means of production out and coming back and selling that crap here. Well, That's- eventually it all falls apart, Viz. I mean, eventually there's not going to be enough jobs to sustain anybody buying those $50 a pair of sneakers. Um, I mean, outside of a very small elite that can afford it. All right, we yeah, call the I mean, NBA. The middle class in this country, which are the kids for the most part buying those sneakers, you know, the middle class in this country shrinks every day. I mean, yep. it's getting to the point where you're going to have what's really coming in the future. We, I won't call it fascism. I won't call it communism. It's feudalism. And, and William points that out in his book. And it has a very good quote in there from someone, I can't remember the, the author of the quote. Coleman? But talks about, uh, who's it? No, Coleman? let's. Let, yeah, let, yeah. All right, uh, on that, because uh, uh, I'm going to muff you right now, dude. <laughs> and on that segue, beautifully done by you, Larry. Yeah. We're yeah, going to yeah. go to to uh, Mr. Ramsey, who's going to talk about that quote and give us, us uh, you know, his final take upon, uh, you know, are we ripe for what we believe might be happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it just goes back to the occult view of the world, what Hitler liked and what Crowley liked, and that is a feudalized system of... Uh, a ruling class and a bunch of starving masses, you know, something medieval. And uh, I think that that's what we've seen implemented in the last, definitely the last 10 years, if not over decades, probably since the 60s or 70s. And uh, it hasn't really been pushed back or stopped at all. And uh, it's probably going to continue. And, uh, you know, that's the new world order for you. All right. Uh, and finally, let me just say this to you. Because you're in a situation where you're raising children, now, I, you know, we, Larry, you, me, all, we email and talk to a lot of people, and the ones who are hurt the most by the belief that really things are not going to go well are, are, are trying to be optimistic because they do have children, and everybody can understand that. I'm like, yeah. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, you know the reality, um, <clears throat> but you also have children you have to raise in what is going to become whatever the life is, you know, after the fact. Uh is there a way you balance that at all, or are they young enough now that you don't have to really talk to them, but you realize what they're going to go to, and, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the sad reality is is that, you know, I, we've gone over the ellipse, and now it's just a declining state of uh, of uh, of wealth, you know, whereas every generation of Americans was able to give their kids more and more. Now it's just like it's going to be less and less. So my parents less for me. And then it's just going to keep going down based upon the, the current political system. So, you know, and, you know, they're young enough. My kids are five and nine, so I don't have to, and I try not to explain those realities to them. But uh, that's the way things look right now, as long as the Americans don't stand up and fight against their political oppressors that are in the country and the banks that are in the country. Well, as long as we have two Period. parties and they get all pissed off at each other, we're, we are still just digging a, a bigger hole. I'm sorry well, to say. Well, but look you, at Obama. He was supposed to be hoping change. All he is is another banker stooge. I mean, come on. Well, listen, there is change. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. Things are getting pennies, worse. So you get pennies. <laughs> and the guy doesn't even work. He's oh, oh, off 90 days. The guy in the seat, you know, they, they yeah. change the face of the guy who's in the seat, and, and, and they're all they're all controlled by by yeah. powerful financial interest. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it's Corporation A and Corporation B. You know, there's a little bit of difference between the Democrats and Republicans, but it's about a dime's worth. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing substantially different. You know, they're all controlled by the corporate interest, and that corporate interest will make up the oligarchy. Along with, in my opinion, and we've been over this, but there's there's going to be in the new world order. There will be uh, the way the Bible describes it in Revelation is going to be a uh, an emperor or an antichrist, uh, a false prophet, and then there'll be an oligarchy that that. Uh, you know, that serves them. Yeah, I yeah. would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Well, the that's, first thing we got to do is get the presidents out of public housing. Uh, right. Okay, <laughs> give me a drum roll Good on idea. that. All right, listen, we've been we've been talking with uh, Larry, the contractor guy, and also with William Ramsey, our guest star for this show, and we appreciate the fact that he uh, turned up for this. And you know, as it used to be when we were kids, we used to plan parties, and they used to like just like fail. And then sometimes something happens at the spur of the moment, and it becomes a very good thing, which is what happened here today. Yeah, this has been a good episode. Yeah, thanks a lot. We, we really appreciate it. And, folks, you go to occult911.org.com, uh, excuse me, but, and also take a look at what's all there. Uh, the fact that Larry has often referred to William's book uh, is, is not for any other reason, but it's, it's good stuff. It's packed dense. It is an excellent book. It is, a, I, I would say, one of the most important books about the New World Order I have ever read, and I'm not shining William on, it's just yeah. that good. And it's mostly about Crowley, but it shows how Crowley's influence was so strong and that Crowley was on the leading edge of bringing in the New World Order. Even though the SOB is dead, his legacy lives on. And, and, in, and in younger people, for that matter, there's many a rock star that's been influenced by Crowley. I wouldn't call him a young guy, but uh, you got Ozzy Osbourne. Even wrote a, uh, you know, uh, uh, he wrote a song. Yeah, yeah he wrote a, uh, you know, an homage to to Crowley, which is sickening in itself. I just want but, to know if, if he's had sex with his mother. I mean, <laughs> I where did she know. come from, and why is she still around? <laughs> I mean, God, go get away. I mean, he with probably us. has to ask her, you know, how to go to the bathroom each oh, morning. Man. I don't know, man. It's very, very strange. All right, well, listen, I tell you what. Uh, before Larry goes hairy again, uh, <laughs> let my poor guest, William Ramsey, get out of here. Uh, but, but seriously, thank you all for, for listening to this. And, uh, yes, uh, Larry was not uh, um, greasing anybody when he was saying uh, that the import of William's book is just that. Uh, please, if you get a chance, avail yourself of that. And uh, both you, William, again, on short notice, wow, thank you very much. I appreciate right, well, it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have okay. a great time. And, and Larry, all right, I'll see you next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, we're back to uh, We Are What We Hated, and I believe this is episode 22. And, of course, always with us is, is Larry the Contractor Guy. Uh, and he had made mention yesterday uh, in discussing what we're going to do today, uh, and he mentioned William Ramsey, as he has several times, not only to me, but uh, uh, during the, uh, the whole uh, length of the program. And I just got this real brainstorm. It's like, you know, maybe it's time we can get William on. So um, I asked him, and he's here. And, William, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it, especially with the short notice. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. And we're going to talk about some of uh, William's work and if there's anything else new that might be coming down the pike. And uh, you've seen the website there. It's, it's up with uh, the audio. 
and that's occult911.com. So um, it was Larry's idea, and so Larry, why don't you frame what we're going to do today, uh, since this is obviously your baby, and, uh, and uh, you wished for William to be here, and he's here. Well, basically, uh, I was wanting William to come on to, uh, to discuss Crowley uh, and, and his influence on the Nazis and Hitler, and also uh, Crowley's influence on other individuals who were somewhat partially responsible for World Wars I and II, and, of course, uh, we could talk somewhat about uh, Crowley's influence on, on the events of the 21st century and 9-11. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask William about is uh, in his chapter uh, 16 in, in Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order, which we'll be talking about today. In chapter 16, it starts off with a picture of Crowley and a, and a, uh, a quote from him where he said, before Hitler was, I am. He, he uh, made that statement in Time magazine, December 15, 1947. And I was wanting to ask, uh, what do you think he meant by that? And, and I, I kind of have an idea what he meant, but I'd like to get your take on that, and maybe you can elaborate on it somewhat. Well, I think what he was trying to impart was that he he was taking credit for kind of Hitler's actions, uh, that he, he was kind of the ideologue and, and Hitler was more of the actor of, of really what took place in the middle of the 20th century. So I think for him, uh, you know, he wanted to uh, pervert that biblical quote uh, and, uh, you know, see himself as the kind of arbiter or the creator of that, uh, of the massive destruction or, or the influencer of the massive destruction of the, the uh, World War II. Well, I think he definitely had a great deal of influence. In fact, um, another quote you have in the book that I, I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, you say in page 194, he represented an evil influence upon other people. Many of his associates and followers affected world events. J.F.C. Fuller was one of two Englishmen invited to Germany for Adolf Hitler's 50th birthday in 1939. There are not vast degrees of separation between Crowley and Hitler. The connection reaches merely from Crowley to Fuller to Hitler. Both Hitler and Crowley emphasized, if not completely dedicated to, the primacy of the human will. The triumph of the will by Leni Riefenstahl emphasized his ideology. Crowley had his own approach to human will, his word in law, the lemma, which is will in Greek. Um, could you comment somewhat on J.F.C. Fuller? I, I, I think you're uh, pretty familiar with him. I, as I understand it, Fuller was a... a uh, an OTO member, or, or at least an occultist, and he was also a very uh, high-ranking uh, general in the uh, in the British Army, and was a man who had a lot to do with tanks and, and the yeah. development of tanks. Well, JFC Fuller uh, had a connection with Hitler uh, very early on. When Hitler, I mean, excuse me, with uh, Crowley, Crowley had set up a um, an award to be given out to somebody who wrote. Uh, you know, a book. It was a thousand, I think a thousand pound reward. It was a sizable award. And GFC Fuller wrote a book about Crowley called The Star in the West. And that started off kind of a, a relationship between the two. Uh, eventually there's a falling out that took place that's very typical in relationships, uh, Crowley had with his followers. But, uh, GFC Fuller went on to write for himself The Prophet of the Devil. And he, t Crowley himself took responsibility for you know creating or setting setting uh laying the groundwork for the ideologies that 
created the World War One and World War Two. Now, granted, how much of a responsibility that should be attributed to Crowley is, uh, I guess, up to the listener or reader. But right, it's an opinion, really. But I believe it was tremendous influence, and that's why I believe your book is so important that people begin to understand the real uh, motivations, uh, the real reasons behind the First and Second World War. And I believe that you're entirely correct in that uh, uh, he influenced, in effect, the events of September 11th, 2001. Yeah, and, and you know, and that that was the, really the primary impetus of of my research or why I was researching Crowley. But then I recognized that his ideologies and his ideas were not just an influence upon 9/11, but a lot of the 20th century and Hitler. So, and you know, the the, the they you could have taken Crowley and Hitler and put them in two places where there would never have any bleed over, but the similarities in their ideology shows how important they are. And there clearly has been some type of, you know, cross-fertilization between them through GFC Fuller and others and other OTO members. And Hitler, in his early years, he was enamored of the theater, and there, he loved this one play called Parsifal, which I know for a fact is uh, was written by an OTO member, so it had all this kind of like German. The Holy Grail. Yeah, the Grail and all this other stuff, the uh, blood and so forth. Yeah, and then there's uh, you know his his attention his his uh, atta- attraction to Dietrich Eckhart, who he quotes in his uh, Mein Kampf as like the most influential person. And and Dietrich Eckhart was a master master of the temple, much like Crowley was. I mean, right. they both they both uh, took took that title upon themselves. Crowley went a little bit farther and called himself called himself a magus and one of the seven most important people. Yeah, you really love to put titles, uh, grandiose, grandiose titles. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, but yeah, so um, look, my look. point is, is that you know these these uh, this this kind of ideology and outlook is very important, I think, for people to understand because it shows how human beings can be capable of such uh, violence and evil, really unleash warfare and you know destruction. Uh, can I ask a, a question about Crowley? Uh, what you just mentioned, and um, I mean, this is a jump ball for both of you. One, uh, he seems to have done a reasonable amount of clowning up. And I'm wondering if, one, he did that so as not to be taken all that seriously so he could do the serious work afoot, or if, two, you know, that was part of, like, quote, his playful spirit, uh, because it did ha- it has worked to a certain extent for, to make some observers, historians, whatever, say, no, he was pretty much showbiz. There was really nothing there, and I think that's a, a, a big mistake. So what I'm asking you two gentlemen, do you, do you think that clowning or that showmanship part of him was a deliberate, you know, like facade? Go ahead. Well, I can comment on that. I do think that it was deliberate. I think that he was a pretty sophisticated guy, so a lot of – and he was also kind of the uh, – he was uh, trying to become a, a kind of a, a person of renown, so – a lot of this clowning and public statements and things where he was always covetous or uh, always wanted to obtain the, uh, the 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 press attention, you know. So he was always trying to do it with his writings or a public display. So uh, then, you know, that was kind of like his public, also his public, you know, uh, his face that he gave out. But you know, the more the deeper that you got, the more serious he became. So. You know, as a as a person with many facets, Crowley. You know, as a complex person with many facets, Crowley definitely had this kind of joking exterior. But uh, 
you know, once you read all his stuff about child sacrifice and, uh, yeah. you know, his blasphemies and stuff like that, he, there's a very, uh, you know, it's sexual perversions and everything, a variety of different books. He, he was, uh, very literate, much like Crowley. He, uh, formulated and learned from the events of World War One, where there was static warfare and devised the strategy to use mechanized, uh, military, um, tanks and uh etc to have a more mobile kind of attack structure during any other future warfare and uh, the english being kind of a more seafaring nation did not adopt these tactics but they found a lot of uh, uh adherence in the german high command or the german war command and uh he also was kind of a pan uh nordic kind of um I guess you would say kind of an occultist of that of that stripe, similar to Hitler, and uh, he was one of only two uh, people uh, invited, two Englishmen invited by Hitler to uh, attend Hitler's 50th birthday in I think it was 1936. Yeah. I'm just curious. Uh, I know he had an influence on the Germans as far as their tactics. Was he, uh, uh, or do you know that if he had any uh, influence on or any relationship with Guderian? Not to my knowledge. I don't know. You know, he was kind of more of a, doing my research on uh, on Crowley. He was kind of like a side figure. I didn't really follow up a, not a lot. I just thought it was pretty interesting that he had, um, you know, he had been, uh, there was a direct connection between him and Hitler. So yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think uh, as far as his influence on the German high command, I mean, I think that... Uh, According to my understanding is that, you know, I don't know Guderian in particular, but definitely the German military was definitely enamored of his writings. All right, let me ask you guys a question um, or, or make a statement, uh, and then I have a question. Uh, with the, with the, uh, the passage you read uh, was um, with, with the, before Hitler was I am, is that, is that what that was? Uh, it was a statement that Crowley made. Uh, right. I think in Time Magazine, according to, to what William wrote, I'll let him address that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you not think also that there was a slap at Jehovah in that one? Well, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it's a direct reference from the statement that Jesus Christ made in front of uh, the Jewish, uh, you know, uh, you know, during the time that Christ was in Jerusalem. So, you know, he was uh, he was definitely referencing that straight up. All right, we, we, uh, and, and, and the name Jehovah, my understanding, is kind of I am what I am. That's what it means uh, that, right. um, in, in Hebrew. Does it strike you, gentlemen, uh, strangely, if you think about it? That was in Time Magazine, correct, Larry? Yes. Can you imagine a supposedly real Christian country back then looking at, at the cover of Time? I, I, you know, I'm wondering if there was any kind of backlash toward the magazine for being, oh, so unchristian or whatever, let that happen. Or whether Crowley, and I guess you can tell us perhaps, William, did he ever get any fallout from that? Because this guy seems to be a little bit like Teflon. Uh, this it was the, the reference in Time Magazine was referencing a, crew, uh, a statement Crowley said about you know before Hitler was I am, but it was uh, it was in the Time Magazine in forty seven upon his death. So I just referenced that uh, you know article as Crowley saying that I couldn't when I was doing my research I couldn't find the exact place where he had said that but time had referenced him saying that so right. and, and the reason I just bring this up and Larry I'll throw it back to you it just sure. indulge me one more I appreciate it thank you uh, no I, I do I do honestly it's I don't, your show here it is that's it whenever it's just get the old guilt stick all right 
Uh, and this is based on a little bit of what William and I talked about earlier in the day. But he makes that comment, and he's pretty much out of Dodge by then, and his life's coming to an end. So I guess he could have done that. And if, any, if there was any angst directed toward him by a nation, I guess it really didn't matter because he was gone. However, what really struck me interestingly was that this guy at least was around long enough to have some import in both World War I and II. I talked to William before about um, the mentioning of, of um, a Crowley with a, a, an individual who was a German-American by the name of Eric. And, you know, and there he was instigating stuff at the time. And maybe William gives a little thumbnail on what he claimed to be and what he might, in fact, have been. And then you see him again, like in World War II. I mean, for a character that spans two wars, had a reasonable import in both, to a certain extent, in the espionage, if you will. He, uh, I mean, man, he just does not get included in a whole lot of books, you know, about both wars. So, William, uh, with that ha having said that, uh, do you find it interesting that he was pretty much active in both wars, kind of like behind the curtain? Yeah, I do. I think it's very interesting, particularly when, you know, somebody as important on world affairs as Hitler, who really the 20th century, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, probably the most important figure of the 20th century in many ways because of the war he created. And his ideology was so similar to, simple, uh, similar to Crowley. So it seems strange to me that so many historians and, you know, uh, intellectuals or literati literary figures have mm -hmm. have uh, really not have overlooked him and not addressed the the import of that particularly you know in his relation to somebody who was responsible for the death of millions all right i appreciate that larry i'll throw it back to you and let me ask you this though did you think did you know that crowley uh was kicking around and he was stateside also wasn't he for a while william in world war one Right. So, you know, he came right at the outbreak of World War One. He was in New York. He uh, associated with, you know, the literati. He uh, was friends with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, famous people at the time, or was at least in contact with them. Uh, and uh, he left right around 1919, uh, yeah, 1919 after the war and went back to England for a time and then ended up in Italy where he started his Abbey of Philema. But, uh, you know, he... You know, the, during the time that he was in New York, he was in uh, Greenwich Village, so he was hanging around and associating with all of the, you know, highlights of uh, the people of that day who were, you know, in the literary world. And, that world, and that's what Crowley always aspired to be, is right. like a literary figure. Yeah, Bohemians, you would call them then, wouldn't you? Bohemians, yeah, yeah, that's, absolutely. Uh, so there you go, Larry. I mean, if you've not even uh, been able to get into the first World War involvement of Crowley, I mean, this character... Geez, I mean, he spans a, quite a few decades and, and is a real pivotal figure. Well, I think the Book of the Law, which Crowley supposedly uh, uh, wrote through automatic writing, uh, Crowley attributed to, I believe he, the, the way it's pronounced is Aiwaz, uh, he, he attributed it to this, this being. And really when you get down to it, as, as William has said in his book here, uh, in his own writings, by his own testimony, he repeatedly made contact with discarnate spirits, Aiwaz, Alamantra, Abdulaziz, and, La and Lamb. He, he claimed personal authority from the secret chiefs, a hidden group of spiritual masters that shaped the destiny of mankind. The primary spirit he worshipped, Aiwaz, provided him with the Book of the Law in 1904. Crowley referred to Aiwaz as him, he, the ineffable one or Lord and the entity as we now know, 
as evidenced by numerous references by Crowley's own hand, is the devil or Lucifer. I believe the book of the law was brought about uh, to help Crowley influence what, uh, in his book, uh, Hitler the Black Magician, Suster calls a demoniac movement. In other words, uh, what Suster is saying is that Crowley was the primary human influence uh, that that helped bring about the First World War and, and eventually the Second World War and the Third will come uh, because these this, these wars are planned by the powers of darkness and in and in the uh, the entity of Lucifer, the devil. Okay. I hope I've got that right. <laughs> No, and I mean, just to follow on in your reference, I mean, Crowley himself states right here, this being called Awaz, an intelligence discarnate, who wrote this book of the law using my ears and hand, his mind certainly superior to my own in knowledge and power, for he has dominated me and taught me forever since. So, you know, one of, that's one of the reasons why I call it titled the book The Prophet of Evil, is that Crowley considered like that, there's a very dark uh, center core to his to his character, I think, for certain, at least in my opinion. Larry, what, what about that in your take? And then I have to ask you a question as well. Well, I agree with I agree with William that you know uh, he uh, he was a very serious guy underneath, and he he did he did affect something of a clownish uh, you know persona. I think part of it probably is because he he kind of had the heart of a ham actor. I mean, he liked to um, he liked to run around in these elaborate uh, outfits, you know, with capes and and turbans and and you know just kind of uh, affecting kind of a you know, almost a comic opera look. You know, but uh, when you got down to it, and you and anyone who really became familiar with him, and I would think it wouldn't take very long before they saw the the seriousness of the man as far as his his intentions, and just how incredibly intelligent and how, how incredibly evil the man was. I mean, I uh, when you read some of his writings, it, you almost have to stop. Uh, at some point, because it's just so disgusting yeah, and, and yep. vile. I mean, the man was just vile was the best way to describe him. Um, this is kind of interesting, too, I'm just, as an aside. But when you talk about this, and I think back, uh, and there's some other work I'm doing here that brings us to, the, to, to a, the forefront of my mind, and that is whenever you see the truly sinister and predatory people, I mean, I, even if you're talking about serial killers, I mean, I hate to use these terms, but like the really good ones, um, they're all brilliant. This some I mean the most tragic consequences brought upon mankind, humankind, seems to have been the work of people who are just brilliant. You know, this isn't some just you know beat up little kid or something like that who grows up mean. And it's amazing time and time again. Now, what I wanted to ask you, Larry, on a scale of one to ten, first of all, first off, the um, what do you think the number would be to equate? Uh, whether or not Hitler and Churchill both knew there was a script. Gosh, that, that's a that's a question I've I've never really been able to answer. Um, I would say at least a five or six. All right. Uh, the reason I say that is <clears throat> it's never really been clear to me Hitler's intentions toward England. Uh, when when you when you start to study Hitler, you. you <laughs> You begin to realize very, very early on that he had a great deal of admiration for the British Empire. That actually was the second part of the question. Yeah, he had a tremendous admiration for the British Empire. Uh, right. he, he loved the British crown, the British aristocracy, and he thought that the way that the empire was being run was, you know, was great. And uh, he really did not 
from from what I've read and, and from what I can gather, he really did not want to initiate a war with with uh, Great Britain. In fact, a lot of people think that the attack uh, uh, upon Great Britain, which became known as the Battle of Britain, was really just kind of a, a fake, a feint, uh, uh, you know, which kind of set up his real intentions in attacking Russia in 1941. Of course, everyone knew from Mein Kampf that uh, what they call Lebensraum, a living room, right. is what they were seeking. They wanted they wanted Russia really badly. And, of course, uh, the Nazis politically uh, despised communism, and, and uh, the communists were their, their biggest political enemies. They were what they hated. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, what, right. Now, William, if you can add into this, and Oblauer, you know as well, and this is another question I would like to ask of you. Um, William, is there any, and, and Larry too, have you, any of you come across anything that indicates that Crowley moved between England and Germany during the war? Oh, yeah, he definitely did. Okay. I mean, I don't know, now, during the war, that I don't know for sure, but I know that uh, he spent a great deal of time in Germany. In fact, uh, from Suster's book, I can, I can read, uh, a little bit to you about the First World War. And uh, for Crowley, a sincere and intelligent man had, despite these qualities, become convinced that he was, in truth, the B-666, prophesied in the book of Revelation in the Bible and hailed in the book of the law, who would bring an end